This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Uh, you know, we're all limited by our own, our own perspectives, yeah. but there's definitely times where we have things that we just use the language that kind of is at hand and having someone else kind of re-examine that and go, eh, is that the best choice? Uh, can help a ton. I, uh, w- one thing I, I've often heard cultural consult- cult- consultants say is if you're if you're trying to make a game that is that is uh, that is not you know offensive or uh, harmful to in, any group, you know we we can help you. If if you don't care, we can't. This is a heck of an interview. What we learned from Sean fills a huge hole in my podcast. We've learned from many creators on the how and why they make their games from a design perspective. Sean pulls back the curtain, and I found it very revealing because he teaches us how a game moves from a designed state to actually being printed and put into our grubby little hands. There's often years of activities between design and publishing. I love learning the reality of sensitivity readers and their impact on the game. He gives us another great Groovinon segment. I also found it interesting some of the games sold by Evil Hat that Sean thinks are criminally ignored. Games he wished more of us got a chance to play. Okay, sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Sean. This is Guy Milner. When I'm not running one-shot games at conventions, you'll find me listening to Tabletop Talk. Howdy friends, Craig here. Today I'm chatting with Sean Nittner. Sean is a longtime friend of the show. Check out episodes 164 and 165 for a lot more Sean. He's the director of projects at Evil Hat, and most recently he worked on Deathmatch Island, Girl by Moonlight, and Chen Jang. But if Evil Hat published it, he's probably had a hand in it somewhere. He's also the developmental editor of Apocalypse Keys and Blagues in the Dark and the co-author of Agon. Sean is the steward of Big Bad Con, a gaming convention that celebrates and supports marginalized gamers and Big Bad Online, which hosts 24 hours of panels from speakers worldwide. Sean is also a Patty certified night driver, system administrator, and most importantly, a license to serve alcohol in California. Good God, Sean. Welcome back to the third floor. <laughs> Thank you, Craig. Thank you so much. <laughs> I think it would have been easier to talk about what you don't do. <laughs> I mean, ugh. we all have to wear lots of hats, right? Only some of mine are evil, but. Uh, <laughs> nice. Well done. Well done. We do. We do say I do try to keep busy. Yeah. 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 I. No, I became a, a, a license to serve alcohol, which cost me all $13, but it was mostly the four hours of training videos that were miserable. Uh, but Karen, my, my partner, she's part of an improv troupe and they got a liquor license. And so they wanted to sell booze because that's literally how you keep store, how you keep places open. Yeah. And I said, can anyone get the certification? I was like, sure, I can. So, you know, why not? Another, another thing to do. See, now, North Carolina, all you have to do is, I think, try to remember, 18. I think you, you can be 18 to serve yeah. uh, 
table side. And then I think 21 to be behind the bar. But they'll let any Yahoo serve. <laughs> they're, they're a lot more, a lot less restrictive than uh, what you in California. I mean, the four hours of video was was almost pointless, and the things you you learn in it were just absolute common sense stuff. Uh, so, <laughs> and any, any Yahoo do it is probably just as good a method. Honestly, <laughs> That's I mean, really any Yahoo, honestly. <laughs> so, Sean, typically uh, when you, it's your first appearance, which this is not, you get asked the origin story question, right? right. But uh, People can go back to 164 and they can hear that when I had you and your better half on. I want to ask you a different question. Sure. Um, I think one of the things that really makes the tabletop RPG hobby special is how it lodges moments in our brains. Yeah. Uh, One of the things that I love about origin stories is that I'll ask somebody an origin story and I can visibly and audibly hear them go back in time decades to that, that moment, right? To those moments. But I would be, I'd be interested for you. Have you had recently one of those big moments at the table um, where just everything connected, everything just clicked and you get that beautiful high after an amazing session? Has that happened to you recently? Yeah, it has, actually. Um, and it's the timing on this couldn't be better because it's been it's been a while. But I was <laughs> up to uh, I was up in Seattle uh earlier in the month uh, for Go Play Northwest. And it's a lovely, tiny little gaming convention that happened for years at Seattle University. John Harper was one of the founders. Um, um, and uh, this year, they, they shut down for several years because of COVID. And this year, they reopened in the Centelia Community Center, which is in Beacon Hill, Seattle. So new location, uh, which was great because the food in the area was fantastic. And it was the first time that I was at a gaming convention running and playing games for ever because of course i've been a big bad but i'm running big bad i'm still hitting right i've been to a couple other cons where i have played i guess i have played in a few games but i i wasn't sure what my attendance of those conventions would be like i didn't know how long i'd have to spend and so i jumped into a few games but i didn't sign up to run anything and uh, this was the first time that i was running a game but sort of more importantly it was the first time that i just felt really at ease at a convention. <laughs> I was with, you know, a hundred people that I, I've seen a go play for years and it felt like, Oh, I'm connecting up with all my old friends. It was just a lovely experience. So there was a lot of, um, sense of reunion and connecting with people and just a very relaxed vibe for me, at least, um, I still volunteered for three different shifts and ran games. I was still very busy, but it felt, <laughs> it felt, uh, relaxing to be there. Uh, and I think I think that had something to do with it because I think when you are in a uh, when you're really frantic as I often am, unfortunately, it's hard to appreciate these moments. And sometimes yeah. they don't lodge in your heads or they don't happen at all because you're just um, you're too busy thinking about what to do next. Uh, but I had a lovely game in the evening. I didn't have to worry about what I was doing afterward. And I was running Girl by Moonlight. Um, I nice. was running the um, the Jumpstart Folio, the Jumpstart series for on a Sea of Stars. Uh, which has the canonical uh, Onesia Stars characters, um, Van, Himna, Phelan, and Cert. Uh, and in this case, Cert, the player renamed them to Ur. But because Ur are the two middle letters in Cert, it was still very easy to remember. I'm like, okay, yeah, awesome. Thank you for making a name change that does not require me to rewire anything in my brain. Right. Um, and one of the things that Grow by Moonlight always does in the beginning um, is ask a bunch of world building questions, which you know, many games do. And, and, uh, sometimes those world building questions in any game, I think just sort of add flavor. 
but sometimes yeah. they directly foreshadow and influence the the real content of the game and that's what happened here is that we asked questions um of the players one of the questions was it was the uh, leviathans are these giant uh generation ships that were supposed to go off and uh seed the future of humanity uh but they're sentient and they realized that when they arrived they would be destroyed and so they revolted and they sort of turned back on humanity and now these ships that have people frozen in cryostasis are coming back to destroy what's left of humanity but attacking them is inherently dangerous because they're what's the future of humanity is on them. right so terrifying situation and the players were asked some questions of one of the questions was you know what what went wrong what uh what do what does the institution not understand about the leviathans and uh one of the, one of the players answered that they feel very alone that there's nobody that they have humans on them but they're all in crisis cryo there's nobody piloting them and they're sentient and they're they're alone and they all pilot these mecha these engines that are also semi-sentient and they're like we have this bond with them they're emotional creatures you assume the Leviathans weren't, and they are, and this is part of why mm. they're so upset. And so this was this great like seed that then just played out throughout the. And there were many other questions, but there, that seed just played out throughout the whole game to the final climax, where one of the players kind of gave themselves up to become the new pilot of this Leviathan, <sighs> which was the only way to forge a communication method because they couldn't talk to them. They're sentient; right. they, didn't, they didn't speak. And they became kind of the voice of the Leviathan in the end. And it was this big moment of sacrifice, but also this moment of like, yeah, they got it right. And we built into And it wasn't like any of us were like trying to force that to happen. It just, right. we just fed into it. And it was this, there were several other bits that got reincorporated, but that was the big one where like, oh, uh, this, this amazing prophecy came true in this one four hour session. And that just, that just doesn't always happen. You don't always get a single session where this kind of a, brilliant foreshadowing actually reaches fruition and it did here and that was very just very satisfying just like ah oh, so beautiful that it all came together what i love hearing about that story is, is is a lot of things i mean um i i preach all the time about how much system matters and girl girl by moonlight they they created that game from the ground up to tell a very specific type of story yeah right um yeah. it is it's it's prescriptive right we're not gonna we're not going to play thieves um, you know, robbing a bank. Right. When right. we play Girl by Moonlight. Our game for that. Exactly. Right. Um, and when when a creator does that, when they create a game from the ground up to do something specific, it, it gives it sets it sets the stakes and gives the GM and the table, most importantly, all the tools they need. Mm -hmm. And Aegon and Blaze in the Dark are two other examples that I bring. Uh, the, uh, bring up all the time. Totally random, by the way. I had nothing to do with you. <laughs> but you then connect that with a great table, right? Because a, a great table can can overcome even a bad system. But man, when you get a good system with a table that just leans in and say, "Look, we're we're gonna we're gonna tell this story. Yeah. We're gonna do this together." It, it's really really special. Now, obviously, you were involved, and we're gonna get into Girl by Moonlight a little bit later. But before we do. What's different now that you've run the game a few times? So, I mean, you have, you've touched the game. You've been a part of that game for a long time. You were yeah. there through all the crowdfunding and everything. Now, when you get a couple of weeks ago to just to step back and just run the damn thing, is, is there anything you saw in the game that was new after running it? 
I think for me, uh, you know, I've run it, I ran it when it was first in development several years ago as a playtest. When we had the open playtest for it, I was running it because whenever we have games, if I have time and there's conventions, so this was, I think, Gen Con 2019, I was running a bunch of sessions of it and I was running a, a this scenario has been refined and improved, but it was the same same scenario. So, you know, it's four years later that I'm running hmm. the same thing. But now I had, I mean, not to, not to gloat, but I had this beautiful printed out folio that you, yeah. that you get with it. I mean, the, the, the folios aren't out yet, but I just printed one of my own and then like staple bound it and cut it and made it look really beautiful. I gave one to Andrew too, because they were going to be there. And I was like, oh, you're going to run. So here's a beautiful <laughs> folio for you. And something that was in it now that wasn't there in the, in, in the yeah, originally uh, early on was this very step-by-step instruction of here's like nine steps to get you playing in the first hour. And I just walked through those, which was great. I didn't have to remember a lot of things. I didn't have to reference the book on my phone. Um, yeah. I had between my knowledge, my working knowledge of the system and having this kind of like checklist to go through. And I kind of slipped up on one, and I forgot a step and had to go back, but it wasn't nothing catastrophic. But what it meant was that we were able, it just hit this level of refinement that I think we really, really strive to do at Evil Hat, but just in general, when, when you're preparing for a convention game, which is pare down, pare down, pare down, yep. ask the most essential questions, make give the players the most essential decisions so you can jump to the table. Because within 45 or 50 minutes, we were opening up our first scene, which to me, uh, there's so many games and conventions that I've loved, but I spent two hours doing character creation and world building. And by the time you get to play, it's like, oh, we have an hour, hour and a half to play. We took a break. Yep. You barely get it. You barely get to actually get the action of the game. And yep. that's still fun. I mean, that world building is great, but because it has been so refined, I was able to jump in really quickly. And, uh, and that's a, for me, that's a sign of success. And that really, it gave us just that much more time to play out these beautiful scenes. And also, I think we even ended up ending early because we just had this perfect climactic moment. <laughs> being dark out. I was like, this is great. This is our final group action. Let's see how it goes. And uh, we did a few little epilogues at the end. But yeah, having it really buttoned down made a huge difference. And Sean, I, f- I feel like this movement towards that is relatively new based on my experience. And, and it feels like a little bit of lifting it from the board game industry, mm-hmm. which is a step one, step two, step three. And um, you know who does a great job with it in his games is Jason Cordova at the, at the back of all of his books. It has session one. Here's what you do first. Yeah. Here's yeah, what yeah. you do second. Here's what you do third. And I really would love to see more games do that literally walk us through session one not prep there's all you know there's all kinds of prep stuff out there there's all kinds of how to be a gm and how to run the game but literally first thing you do is you give them your character sheets which if you're an experienced gamer sean i don't need that i'm okay yeah but man i gotta tell you like especially when the game that's as unique as girl by moonlight having that as a tool for me to walk be able to walk us through I think that's awesome. So it yeah. makes me happy that Andrew put that in there. Yeah. And there's one for each of the four jumpstart folios. So you've got four session one examples with characters, pre-set up situation, but still the world building questions, the promises that the characters make each other, the important things to make it feel like it's your game. Um, yeah. You know, I really love half-baked, you know, games for, for set for conventions where you've got enough there that you don't have to 
learn it from scratch, but um, the players get to make really important decisions just the same and, and guide, guide the play. I agree. I don't think a lot of games have that. I think I think board gaming is absolutely where some of that uh, mentality or sensibilities come from. I know for me, it's really important. Uh, I know when Blades in the Dark came out, um, you know, no 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 bias there. But even well, even before it came out, I was writing up these one page score sheets, which you've had Sean and Navi on. They're the yep. they're the queen and king <sighs> of one page score sheets like i made like five of them they made like 50 of them and they're all really good they're really good but it was like everybody you know pick who your patron is pick a little a detail about the job pick some known opposition and let's go it's enough yeah. to, it's enough to get the players invested and give the gm direction it does it, you're just doing a few things on a pick list and often providing a little bit of detail but it was for me it provided that sort of assurance that i wouldn't just sit down at the table and be like okay make some scoundrels and i guess we'll see what you're interested in right you know um i've done that too i've done that plenty of times often i like ask somebody about their enemy or their rival like i figure out like somebody they don't like and we build a score around that like oh okay okay what trouble have they been causing you or something like that but um but but you're experienced in that situation sean you've run several games of blaze in the dark so you feel very comfortable in that scenario right But what what you're saying, I couldn't agree with more. It's what I love about Sean and Navi's work there with the the single scores. For first time running Blades in the Dark, there's a lot. It's a very different game than anything yeah. most people have run before. And having that step one, do this. Step two, do this. Pick one of these four scores. Step yeah. three, you know, and just step by through it. I I absolutely love it. So you said you ran three games. Did you run three games of Girl by Moonlight? Or did you run any other games? Oh no, I just ran that one. That was that was that was the only game I ran. I go play. I played in a few uh what'd you play i played uh kids on kids in capes which is a play test of the kids on bikes supers game and um, having played masks and playing teen supers that are like really uh they're really like have like so many strong feelings you know they're like they're uh they're they're you know they're really driven by like their emotional fraughtness it was pretty <laughs> fun to play like I'm Billy, the town kid that like happens to also have powers, but is a little younger and so a little less sort of driven. Night, Nightwingish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I love that. Uh, also had some very good reincorporation. Um, you know, we built we built this little little town and then filled it with very cool people and then made our characters around them, which I think was really smart. And then, what's your stance on language in this on this uh, show? Uh, yeah, go go for it. Oh, and then I played "You're a Fucking Butterfly" by Tim Hepburn. <laughs> I mean, that's literally the name of the game, so I wouldn't even be able to say it if 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 if. if you what had... a great name for a game! Yeah. All, right, all right, we got to dive into this. What the hell is that? Yeah, "You're a Fucking Butterfly" is a tiny little uh, LARP. I think it's a LARP. We'll call it a LARP by Tim Hutchings. Um, you divide up into. Flowers and butterflies. I think okay. they're uh, predominantly butterflies, but there's a few flowers. And you all have a a card, uh, a, a a poker card uh, number with some numbers on it. You don't get to see your number. Uh, you get a card. You don't look at it. And um, and then uh, oh no, you do look at it because it tells you. Sorry, it tells you whether you're a, a a butterfly or a flower, but you don't look at anyone else's. Um, Got it. And so if you're a flower, you stand in one place, kind of swaying and undulating like a flower might in the wind. 
and you call the butterflies and you compliment them and you give them these these compliments like, oh, you over there, I love your wings. Oh, you look at there, that hat you're wearing. Oh, you look at over there. Um, and you you call the butterflies over and you look at, they, you ask them for their card, you look at their card and then you send them off to the compliment and you keep doing this and you try to remember who had what card. And then you start developing a pattern of calling the butterflies in numerical order. Uh, this is important oh, for later. Interesting. Right. Uh, so you're, you'll call them back. So you might call them and then call them, call them again. So as a butterfly, which is what I was, um, you strut around giving insults that aren't real insults. Like, hey there, your hair is really good. Or like, hey there, I see you're wearing a shirt. Or like, hey, like, we're in the same space together. You, know, <laughs> you, you make these insults that are not insults, but they're just sort of like this sort of like peacocking where, right. you, where you strut around. And you kind of you kind of beef with the other butterflies, and then you try and figure out the pattern of the butterflies going to uh, the flowers. And if interesting, you, your goal is to find another butterfly with the same number card that you have, because there's going to be multiples of uh, of each number because it's a playing deck deck of poker cards. And so you're trying to figure out like, oh, I think that one's counting up because they started with me and I have a really low, low number and they called me first or something like that. You, you try to pair up with another uh, butterfly that has a similar number to yours. And you, when you think you found them, you walk up to them and say, you're a fucking butterfly. And <laughs> if they want to pair up with you, they say, you're a fucking butterfly. And then you lock arms or hold hands or do whatever you want. And then you strut around together like, like, hey, everybody, you're a fucking butterfly. And then that begins kind of the end game where like people need to start pairing up now because uh, once there's only so many pairs to be made. Uh, and once everybody's paired up, all the butterflies get in a circle and they have this little like butterfly off or like two butterflies, a pair will walk in the circle and kind of like strut their stuff and another pair will come up. And then secretly, you'll each show each other your cards and whoever has the best pair of cards, uh, a pair is your best case scenario. Uh, if not a pair, then it's how close you are numerically. So right. we had, me and my fellow butterfly, we were two threes. We won. We won with two threes. Technically. Two nines would have been the best hand, but nobody would have been the best pair, but nobody had that. But, right. um, but somebody, somebody else, like a five and a six is better than a five and a seven because five and six right. is closer. Anywho, um, so they come up and you kind of strut your stuff. You kind of peacock around, you tell them you're a fucking butterfly and you share numbers and you kind of do a little dance off. And then whoever's the losers have to leave, but they don't, nobody shares who is the be nobody shares the, the the card value so everybody else in the circle thinks they still might be able to beat you and so then the new something? contender comes up and they do the same thing and you keep repeating this until one pair is standing the one with the best pair of cards and then they go and fuck up the meadow that's that they run off and fuck up the meadow and uh and that's it that's your fucking butterfly it takes about 20 30 minutes it was a delight oh that's fascinating very fun Everyone oh that does sound fun i've i've just Still, I've just given the entire game's contents. I mean, but but if you're gonna play it, go go buy a copy of Tim Hutchings. The book itself is in the shape of a butterfly. Uh, it's a tiny little staple bound thing. But oh, that's fantastic! And what's neat about that, from a, I don't know and, and and understand that my exposure to the LARP pantheon is very very limited. Um, it's basically everything everything Jason Morningstar has made. It's sure. I mean, my yeah, the extent of it. But it, it, I love the gamification that's happening with this one, where it's not only the LARP and you're given everything to to, you know, to do the actual role play piece, 
but it's actually a game game too, which yeah. is kind of cool. Yeah, that's very it was cool. Definitely like a, I mean, I I was watching the flowers and I was like, ooh, I got called, and then immediately after this other person got called, they must be close to me. So that's I didn't cool. know we were a pair, but I figured we were at least close, and I was like, that's good enough. Um, so I was like, oh, hey, you know. It was, it that was scratches some good itches. I like that. It That's did. super it really cool. And it sounds like a great thing for a con for a bunch of strangers, too. Right. Yeah. You get 15 people out walking around a field. Uh, we, we played outside, thankfully in the shade because it was rather hot. But uh, yeah, it was absolute blast. Tim Hutchings makes weird games. I mean, <laughs> Apollo 47 is you know 500 pages long with one te- with one page of rules text. Uh, and 499 pages of technical manual readouts that don't have any that you could use in the game, but you don't have to. Uh, That's amazing. Thousand Year Old Vampire is, you know, just probably his most most fun. He just makes really weird cookie gifts. If you like Jason Morningstar games, you'll like Tim Hutch. Uh, I'm going to have to check it out because I'm only familiar with uh, Thousand Year Old. I've never uh, messed with the others. Yeah, that sounds really cool. So, guys, the Insider Insight series allows me to sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers and creators and learn how they approach their work. I try to understand their process, inspiration, and methods for crafting their creations. And we're going to do that when we get back from this break. We're going to talk about how does an RPG actually get made? We'll be right back. Hey, friends, if you're like me, being 100% focused, that's a rare feat. That's where Magic Mind comes in. It's not part of my morning routine. Magic Mind fuels my day, makes me more productive and laser focused. I do more in less time. It's packed with all natural ingredients sourced from the best suppliers. It's sugar-free, nut-free, vegan, keto, and paleo-friendly. Visit www.magicmind.com forward slash third floor wars and transform your routine. But here's the real magic. Use code TABLETOP at checkout for an exclusive offer. Subscribe now and enjoy up to 56% off your order for the next 10 days only. Unlock the power of Magic Mind because being your best self should be a daily routine. Get ready to conquer your day with Magic Mind. Visit www.magicmind.com forward slash third floor wars. Use the code TABLETOP and I just found out you'll get one month for free when you subscribe for three months. Hey friends, there are several things happening over at Evil Hat that Sean gave me permission to share. The game Abyssal is playtesting now through February 15th. Details are in the show notes if you'd like to be part of that playtest. On February 14th, they are announcing their biggest product to date. We won't know more until February 14th, but I cannot wait to see what the biggest product ever created by Evil Hack could possibly be. Make sure you sign up for their mailing list to get notified. Lastly, they'll be crowdfunding Takuma Okada's Stew Pot in early March. A link for more details is also in the show notes. So, Sean, I can't remember if I reached out to you, you reached out to me, or we just got chatting about something, but I realized there's been like kind of a huge hole on this podcast, um, which is really we've we I've spent so much time talking about how games are made from a creative creator standpoint, from idea to finishing the idea. But that is only a small part of what actually ends up in our hands. And you have such a unique perspective on this, which is 
not creating the game, but making the game. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. Uh, we often differentiate between the game and the product. So right. somebody will come to me with a game that is not a product. And that's right. fine. Like games are great. You don't need to turn a game into a product. You can just play a game with your friends. I mean, right. it, uh, Vincent Baker is sort of famous for saying everything. Everybody is publishing. It's just who, what your publishing audience is. You know, most mm. people, when they bring a game, it's published for their friends. Uh, maybe it's published for... Uh, an itch page that they've created and the people who can play on that, but it's not published for a broader audience that Evil Hat can can reach. And so right. we and and so you know we so one one way of looking at it is just saying like we're just trying to you know publish it in a more refined fashion. Another way of saying it is that we're we're turning it from a game to a product. I think those are both those are both uh, perspectives that are valid. Uh, but that's. A lot of times the discussion we have internally is like, what's good for the game? What's good for the product? We obviously want what's good for both. But, but uh, that's, that's where we focus on is on that product side. So let's start there with the kind of that selection process or, or, or the process that you guys all go through during that. Because I would imagine there's some really good games that are just really good games. Yeah. And then there's really good games that have the potential of being really good products. Yeah. How, walk me through that. Yeah. So how do you get a sense of that? Yeah. So a lot of times people will, uh, we have a submissions page up on the evil hat site and, uh, people will either ask me about it or they'll find the site and then they'll, they'll read it through and they'll send in a submission. And, you know, I think I say no to 90% of the submissions. It's, 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 we are a small company. We publish maybe two to three games a year and we have maybe 15 games in the pipeline at any given time. Wow. And that's, you know, a lot, uh, uh, for people who all, you know, for, for folks who evil had is all part-time folks, except for Fred. Um, you know, so we're, uh, juggling a lot of things with our, with our day jobs and everything else. And, uh, so we're at a very comfortable place and it means that we can be pretty darn selective, um, and have to be pretty darn selective just to, yeah. to manage the workload. But often what will come in. So a, a, one great example of something that could be a great game, but isn't our bailiwick is something that is um, sort of uh, retelling a, a, a reimagination of medieval fantasy uh, games using a, 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 a D20 or sort of a similar, um, uh, sort of a similar, you know, e either, D, either OSR, OSR oh, sorry, OGL or some like very similar kind of system. Yep. Um, and it'll have a, maybe it'll have a really cool world that they've built, or they'll have like really in-depth mechanics for seafaring or combat or something like that. And I might look at that and go, this looks like a lot of fun, but Evil Hat doesn't have a D20 audience. Like if I try right. to, we found this out in 2016, 2017, 2018, we don't have a board game audience either. We hmm. tried to make a bunch of board games. We even had one that was successfully crowdfunded, or a couple that were successfully crowdfunded, but we didn't. Besides that, like one crowdfunding moment, we just didn't have people coming to us for board games. We made, I think, seven or eight of them, and wow. they all ended up making. They all we either lost money or just sort of barely scraped by on, on most of them. And uh, it's just not what our audience is looking for, you know. We yep. make story games, indie games, whatever you want to call them, but RPGs uh, that uh, are very player driven, that are very collaborative, that are very play to find out, and that's what people associate with us and that's where our audience is so if somebody's designing a game outside of that scope like it might be a great game but it's not a great it's not a great for us um there's also stuff where we are really really trying to uh 
share voices of marginalized creators. And yep. so if a game is telling uh, a very normative story, you know, like a very, like it's got a lot of like uh, unexamined colonialist tropes in it. Um, I, it's not, doesn't mean I might not have fun playing that game, but I don't want to prioritize that game over something like say Apocalypse Keys or Thirst for Lesbians or, you know, other games that we are, or Girl by Moonlight. Other games that I think are not only representing marginalized voices, but also challenging some norms that we really right. want to be challenged. So, and even that isn't a gimme. Like it isn't a for sure that just because something is challenging, it will be a good fit for us. But we do often look at uh, what is the creator trying to say with this? And is, is there mm-hmm. other games right now that are already saying that? Um, sometimes it's just like, oh man, you got us right when we picked up a game or we currently have a game development that's just so close. Yeah. Uh, I mean, some folks submitted a game to us that were really cool. We love it's a personal friend of mine, somebody I know who I would have loved to have published their game. And, um, um, they, they submitted a game of, uh, uh, of this, like super powerful nobles doing horrible things to each other and political intrigue. And, and I was like, I was really excited about it. But I was like, sorry, we currently have one of those games like in development right now. And it's just too close to it. So, yeah. you know, that was, you know, there's, there's, there, there's so many parameters for what, what might, or might not fit, fit for us. Um, and it sounds like one of the takeaways there, Sean, for those that are submitting to you is getting rejected by no means is a commentary on what you submitted, yeah. right? Yeah. Because there's so many factors outside of your game that you have to, that you have to weigh in on. Yeah, yeah. The rejections that we give can vary dramatically. Sometimes we're just like, this is not a game that we would ever publish because of any <laughs> of right? Like, sometimes it's, this is not a game we would publish because of circumstances. Like, maybe right. we would think about this in the future, you know? Um, sometimes it's like, this game needs, looks like it needs a lot of work. But, uh, but several times, many times, we will play, we'll look at a game, go, hmm, this looks like it's got, some real, some, you know, some really good potential. We'll ask the, uh, the creator to play test a game, to run a game for us. We'll play a game online. It's not streamed or anything like that. It's just, right. It's just playing it. We'll play the game. We'll ask some questions afterward and then we'll have a discussion. And then sometimes that's still a, nope, sorry. Uh, but if we can, and we can't always do this, but if we can, we'll say, here's what we think it would need to get to the point where we could make you an offer on it. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we try and say like, you know, maybe you could keep working on this and, and we could look at it again. And we've gone as many as three rounds like that, where we're like, wow. try this. And I've given as much as like 20, 25 pages of feedback. Not most games don't get that. Most games get like sure. a two paragraph, sorry, or a short bullet list of like, here's what didn't work. But sometimes if we get really deep into it, I've, we've written up very long documents and like tried to help people get there. But ultimately, it's their game. Like we, we can, we can try and help, but maybe our vision for it isn't their vision for it, and or what we need them to do isn't something that they're ready to do or want to do. And um, sometimes folks will come to us with a game really early on, and we're like, we, we can't really finish the game for you. Like you need to bring mm-hmm. us most of a game. Like it's, yeah. it's got to be pretty far along um, because we don't have the resources to to bring it to bring it uh, to, to to iron those things out. If you want to do it and bring it back, sure, but. Uh, so it really varies what what folks give to us. I feel better, I guess. I don't. I hate sending rejection letters, and I have to do it all the time. Oh, it's, um, it's got to be. Awful. I feel better when I can at least say, you know, here's the things that we, we would suggest or that we think it it could use. Uh, but uh, 
So, Sean, what is, can you think of one of the more recent no-brainers? So in the last five, 10 years, uh, a game that came to you and you're like, yeah, this is going to get made. Like, this is a no-brainer. Yeah. What's what's one of the more recent versions of that? Yeah, I mean, there could be bias in this just because, uh, just because uh, it's based on a system that I co-wrote. But Tim Denae brought us <laughs> Deathmatch Island and I was like, yeah, we have to make this. And <laughs> I mean, part of it was John Harper said, this is phenomenal. Uh, yeah. you, you absolutely, uh, you absolutely need to publish this. Um, part of it was that Tim is a professional graph designer. He makes books all the time. So when he gave it to us, it looked very polished. Yep. Uh, part of it was that I said, you know, Hunger Games meets X-Files uh, meets Survivor is a lot of fun. But like, I don't necessarily like fight pvp or fighting with other players or i don't like it unless i know everyone's bought into it can mm-hmm. we have some options to say like what if we want to um team up and break the game instead and tim was like yeah i'm into it and and tim really like the things that we did ask for tim really dove into um but it was very very quick to say absolutely for sure we're gonna make this i i feel so bad because i have a couple others that i could say that that's true of, but we haven't announced them yet so no, no we're gonna keep our mouth we're gonna be good <laughs> <laughs> you know um stewpot by takuma okada was another one i had played stewpot several times and so when and i thought it was like done i thought it was as done as it was going to get it's it's a game of adventures setting down their swords and staves and picking up aprons and ladles and and i think I don't know how many DD games I played when I was a kid where I played a character whose goal in life was to get to rich enough that they could open up their own tavern and retire from life. But right. you never did that. That was never like a part of the <laughs> game. And if you tried to do it, D&D just didn't work. Right. Uh, and this is the game I was saying, yeah, that's what you want to do. So you play characters who at the start have retired, but they still have oh, all these cool. trappings of adventure. And those trappings are often pretty toxic. There's a lot of murdering things, taking their stuff. And now you're part of a community and trying to give to them. And so you have all these, you you know, if you're a wizard, you might be able to cast a fireball. Well, at some point you trade out your ability to cast a fireball to learn a new recipe or Mm. somebody repair their shack or, and that becomes your new experience that instead you still technically know how to cast a fireball. It's not as you've forgotten, but it's no longer a game mechanic. You traded an adventuring experience for a community experience and that then mechanically aids you and helps you. And it's what you use in growing further. And the characters, the way the characters progress is how they trade in those old experiences for, for new ones. And, um, and you build up your tavern. There's still a game mechanic behind it. You're still trying to have this uh, thriving tavern and do well and, and resolve issues that come up uh, amongst staff, amongst your patrons in the town itself. But it's this very lovely, very you know, pastoral kind of game uh, set in a, in a backdrop that I think so many of us have thought about or fantasized about, but didn't have a game to do it in. And so there it is. And yeah, to come on when, when they submitted to us, I was like, oh, absolutely. We have to do this. I played it. I loved it. I already knew about it. I, I was super excited to do it. So that's, that's not, oh, that's, that's really neat. And, and I think something that's important in here too, is that we're, what Sean is talking about, and keep me honest here, Sean, is the process of m- turning a game into a product for evil hat, yeah. right? And because there's a lot of things 
from a brand standpoint that are impacting the types of games that you're going to pick. And you've kind right. of outlined that for us, which I think is significant. So you are given um, Deathmatch Island and yeah. you say to Tim, hey, Tim, like, shit, no brainer, we're doing this, right? right. Got a couple thoughts. Tim's like, I'm all in, like, because he's Tim. Five seconds later, he comes back fully polished, it's you know, ready to go. Remarkable. Yeah, that's yeah, not unusual. It, we probably yeah. shouldn't use Tim as our standing example because I mean, Oh boy, is 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 his polish? Yeah, you know, it's, it, 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 I find Tim very intimidating in a very complimentary <laughs> way. He's such, um, a mild, he's such a mild, uh, mannered gentleman, but yeah. But, well, uh, well, yeah, on top of it, he's like a good human being, right? So you yeah, can't even get mad at I know, him. But I um, know. so once once we're there, right? So he, Tim has made those adjustments to the game. Yeah, you're saying okay, we are ready. We are going to start this development um, of. Uh, conveyor belt what's what's next yeah can i i know this is an audio recording but can i screen share with you just so you can follow along with me the, oh yeah sure audio? yeah uh we'll we'll make sure everybody that we uh you know that we uh detail these all um but this is just this is just that craig and i can kind of you know you could see it and if i skip over something you can be like wait wait what about this uh but um this was actually a slide created by karen twelves um, amazing editor. She did a, um, a panel at Big Bet Online where she was talking about the process, her process of, um, of, of getting a game through editing. And while she was doing that, she made this slide. We worked together to make this slide. And so she documented it all. So I asked her right before this call, I'm like, Karen, can you share that with me? Because I'm going to forget half this stuff. Um, <laughs> and you've, you've, uh, you've, um, you know, you wrote it all down. So let's, let's take, make use of that. So, <laughs> uh, so the, the green box at the top says writing. That's, that's the game design, really. That's, that's, that's somebody bringing us text. We ask that they bring it to us in raw format, you know, a Google Doc, a Word Doc, uh, RTF, something that is not marked up because unless you are a professional layout designer, uh, most likely we'll have to rip it out of layout, put it back into raw text, edit it, and then yeah. put it back in the layout again. Like, We've definitely taken games that were in layout, but it's uh, presents some extra steps to do that. So um, the first thing we'll do, uh, this is after we've accepted it, right? We've gone through the steps you detailed. First thing we'll do is we'll pair somebody up with a uh, system development cons consultant. Um, and that's uh, someone to address whatever issues we did have with it in the playtest or in the early looks. So um, uh, can you give some examples of things like that, that may be there? Absolutely. So when we took on Apocalypse Keys, for instance, by Ray Najati, we um, asked Avery Alder, who is the author of Monster Hearts and a mentor in game design and someone who really, really knows the insides and outsides of PBTA games, yep. both from making them herself, playing them and, and mentoring other people and developing them. And so we had Avery as our system development uh, consultant, and she read through Apocalypse Keys. She played a couple games with Ray and really got to uh, and gave her like like where we said, oh, here's like maybe five or six, I don't know, maybe more bullet points of things we think need work. Avery gave her super concrete feedback on right um, on on either of those things or the things that she found herself. Usually the 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 prompt we give the consultant is here's the stuff that we have in mind. Please look at that. Please consider that. Um, and then while you're 
reviewing the game and then give all your feedback, which, you know, may or may not look like what we said in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And if it does, it's going to be a more nuanced, more well thought out uh, perspective. But we asked them to spend a month or two together hashing through it. Actually, I, I should take back giving dates. Dates are so flexible in this early process that I yeah. say a month or two, but it could be longer. It could be less. Generally speaking, the whole process takes us about three years, just to give you a sense of it. But the in the interior of that process is varies wildly, and also even three years is very variable. To give you a sense, we signed on Thirsty Sword Lesbians and Girl by Moonlight the same day, or the or are the you kidding me? Yeah. So those games that came out years apart, wow. we started working on it at the exact same time. One Isn't just took so longer, cool. you know. One just yeah, you know. Uh, was more, you know, there was more that, that was needed. And so that's what we give it. We're very much, uh, uh, until we get to the finishing parts, the very end, the art, the, the layout, the printing, um, those things are pretty easy, not easy, but those things, it's pretty, uh, manageable to lock in dates. But until then I'm always of the, it's done when it's done, you know, yeah. I'll put a date on something so that it doesn't just take forever. But if someone says I need more time, we adjust and there's yeah. a lot of adjustment. Anyhow, so we'll do this. And usually that is a lot of back and forth uh, with the consultant and with the designer. And sometimes I, as the project manager, I'm getting involved, um, depending on either my availability or my particular familiarity with the game or my interest in the game. Sometimes I'll be involved in those. Sometimes our other Evil Hat staff members will get involved, but it's really the, the creator and the consultant that are going back and forth. Um, and then either at the same time or right afterwards, We'll then often bring in a cultural consultant. Um, sometimes we don't bring in a cultural consultant until later on, and we call them a sensitivity reader. Uh, a lot of it has to do with uh, the author, how much the author can own the perspective that they're coming from. So, for instance, um, As the Sun Forever Sets is Riley Daniels' uh, Forge and Dark game of uh, War of the Worlds, Martian Invasion, uh, everything. It's a survival, a survival. Or hex crawl, Origin in the Dark game about overthrowing the British Empire in a sense, uh, the overthrowing the, the the patriarch of the British, the British Empire, and uh, it's a very anti-colonialist game. And uh, Riley very early on was like, "I want, I'm a person in England who can tell, I'm a queer person in England who can tell you some of the experiences of colonialism within England." But I can't yep. tell you, but I'm a white person. I can't tell you the experience of a person of color. And there's no, there's, you can never have enough perspectives on something, but you definitely realize when there's a critical lack, lacking one. And so we asked Helen Gould, who is a, uh, uh, a writer and a cultural consultant who's worked, uh, who also worked on Codex of Worlds. Um, but she is uh, a black woman who lives in the UK and does cultural consultation there. Uh, right. On specifically on uh, race inequality and and, and 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 you know because not everybody speaks for all of their identities you know we yep. don't want to say oh because you own this identity you necessarily can consult on that not everybody wants to carry that that luggage right. but that's something that she specifically does and so we asked Helen can you come in early on to make sure that this perspective is not overly white frankly that isn't yeah. prioritizing. Uh, White people that are, that is critiquing uh, the whiteness of the, the the patriarchy 
adequately. And so real quick on this one, Sean, because this is interesting because we've, we've heard this before, right? That, that, you know, you need to have sensitivity readers. You need to have a, you know, a consultant that does this, but what I would love to find out if it's possible is a concrete example. Can you think of something that she then brought to the game that, that, that ended up impacting it? Do you remember anything that, um, that she did that, that was a change? Cause I think it's super interesting because I, I, I don't know if I've ever come across like a concrete example of here's how we made the game better because yeah. of this process. So there were a lot of, so the good news was that when Helen looked at it, she didn't, she didn't immediately kind of, uh, didn't immediately say, you know, this is an atrocious piece of work, but, right. um, That's there, good. There was a, yeah, that was nice. I mean, it's possible. Yeah. Um, we have, we, I have had a game that we canceled because the culture, the sensitivity readers and the cultural consultants were just like, couldn't, couldn't get to a place where they felt comfortable with it. And that just, it just, it wasn't something we could publish, you know, yeah. we, it was a lot of good intent, but, um, we couldn't, couldn't really move forward on it, but this one, this was not the case. Um, but one of the things that Helen identified was language that Riley had used, a, some sort of unexamined language that sort of sounded perhaps innocuous within the fiction, but carried a lot of cultural weight mm. with it. So um, there were a few like examples of like negative traits, um, and one of them was uneducated. Oh, that's interesting. And, and uneducated was. Uh, mm. It is, uh, you, know, you can see that education clearly has a value, right. obviously, but uneducated is a specific term used in a very classist way, yep. at least within, within the UK, that is really a very, it, it's much more about, uh, about racial, about, you know, racial ethnicity, about class divides yep. than it is truly about education. So you and I, as, a, as somebody, uh, and, and yeah, and I think we're still affected by something like that. Like uneducated still evokes to invokes to us some really negative stereotypes yep. that um, aren't uh, the kind of thing that we want to reproduce and play because we don't want to reproduce those patterns in play. Right. So I'm like, oh, that's somebody's educated. So she said, you know, what is it you're going for? Are you going for someone who's impulsive? Are you going for somebody who is makes rash decisions if you're going someone with that with lacking technical skills there's lots of ways you can come at that without using specific kind of loaded language that has really connotative value and she found several things like that things around mental health things around uh, ability where uh, ableism and centering whiteness and centering kind of the aristocracy just makes it so that some language that you don't think has connotative value, you don't realize the kind of connotative value that some of your language has. So it's not that like, oh, what you were trying to say was inherently bad, right. but what you were trying to say was bringing some cultural baggage yep. along the way that you should, you don't want or that you want to challenge. Um, and so she found several things like that. Um, to, to the extent that there was actually one section called The New Century, and it was supposed to be an in-fiction piece, like some, something written in the time, of the new uh, the new century, and literally Riley was struggling to find an authentic voice. You know, find something that doesn't feel like it's written in twenty twenty. You know, written today, right? But that isn't again reproducing without challenging harmful tropes. Right? You know, it's one of these things where you don't want to lie about this world of the past. You're trying to show sort of the atrocities of it. 
but you're also trying to not let them get away with it. Like right. you don't want to say like, and this was fine. It's all good <laughs> and dandy. You know, you want to call those things out. And so Helen, uh, usually we just have cultural consultants kind of give advice on things to change. But in this case, Riley really felt like Helen's voice was the best one to use in this, like that Helen actually had a better way of expressing this content herself. And so Helen, in addition to being a cultural consultant, became a contributing author. And she wrote this one little section of in fiction that's written by her. And it has an honesty and integrity to it that Riley didn't know how to write herself. Just this one particular section that she's like, I don't feel like I can write this. And, and Helen wrote that in addition to finding so many other little improvements, but, um, but a lot of things that came down to just like what your language says without you realizing you're saying it, uh, that I think cultural consultants find and allow you to say like, well, how do you say this in another way that doesn't carry all that baggage with it? And I think one of the key things you said there that resonated with me, Sean, is improvements, right? And, and what Riley, you know, there's nothing that Riley did wrong here, right? So that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about how can we improve the game? How can we let the game get out of its own way in some ways, right? What you're trying to accomplish here, you're, you're blocking yourself by using, by using this angle, by not commenting here, by, by using this loaded language, um, you're, you, you lose nothing by making some of these adjustments, you only gain, right? And you get, you get the game out of its own way. Um, so I love that concept of improvements. Yeah. It, that's getting the game out of its own way is a, is a really excellent way of, of, of framing it. Um, I think I, I might steal that. I might, might use that in the future, uh, because it's, uh, you know, we're all limited by our own, our own perspectives, yeah. but there's definitely times where we have things that we just use the language that kind of is at hand and having someone else kind of re-examine that and go, eh, is that the best choice? Uh, can help a ton. I, uh, w- one thing I, I've often heard cultural consult- cult- consultants say is if you're, if you're trying to make a game that is, that is, uh, that is not, you know, offensive or, uh, harmful to any, any group, you know, we can, we can help you. If, if you don't care, we can't, right? You know, the intent, the intent has to be there. If you just take something there, somebody's like, I mean, I have definitely seen submissions, unfortunately, where people are very much just reproducing uh, some some very harmful modes of play, some very harmful models, some, very, some reenacting some very harmful patterns, right? Not, not that it's harmful uh, to, in play per se, but like they're just taking for granted some things. And we're like... Yeah, that's like I don't even know where to start. Yep. Like this is not a this is not a fit for us because this doesn't represent our values. This doesn't represent uh the people we care about want to see uplifted. And and you you need an author that that and a creator that's that's ready to hear those things, right? Um yeah. otherwise you're gonna head an incredible block. I was this is a complete tangent, but I think it's important. Um at one point I, in my career, I was managing a call center. And I was the GM of the call center. There's about 700 employees and we had this big uh, like year end type thing. And I gave a speech and um, I inadvertently used a uh, colloquialism that I heard my father say a million times. Right. And um, and I'm not going to repeat it, um, but I had an employee come up to me afterwards. Uh, she was Native American and she said, um, you know, Craig, you said this and it, and it really like, I don't know if you realize what you said. Right. And when she said that to me, 
I had literally shocked, no idea what she was talking about. Yeah. Like, and I'm like, you I only heard it in one context. Right. In, exactly. In like, and and, and I, harmful, no, right? no, not at yeah. all. And, and, you know, she sat down with me she, and then when she said it, I was like, oh my God, yeah. like I've never thought about it that way. And it was an incredible gift, but it, again, it hurt my message, right? So I'm up there in front of all of these people trying to deliver a very specific message. And I got in my own way and I, and I destroyed, but gained nothing by saying it the way I said it. And lost all- credibility, turn, turn some people off. And the people who didn't notice it, the people who are in the same camp as you are, they would have, they would have received the message just as well if you had said it another way, right? You weren't, you weren't conveying anything. Yeah. I've, there are many idioms and, uh, colloquialisms uh, that I have really worked hard to try and train myself not to say. And in fact, in general, I found that um, a lot of times people use idioms in place of actually saying what they want to say. Like they, they use it to dodge around the truth. Like they don't want to say, I have a problem with this or this needs to change. And so I find myself often writing them in emails and then going, nope, I'm going to say what I want to say, <laughs> which is not masking it in some kind of colloquialism yep. that you're like, oh, you'll know what I mean. Uh, and I still do it. I mean, I still do it in speech. I still do it in writing. But um, I, I definitely think that there's a lot of value to re-examining those for lots of reasons, but certainly uh, cultural sensitivity. And, and, and you want to make sure that you're a person that, that, that gives off that I am open to hearing this, right? Because there's, there's people, it was an incredible gift to have that person pull me aside and have that conversation with me. Cause she didn't need to do that. She just yeah. could have said F you, what a jerk and wrote me off. But for whatever reason, she said to me afterwards, she goes, I know that's not what you meant. And I know you didn't mean yeah. to do this. So it, I was incredibly complimented by the fact yeah. that she took the time and effort to g- then go through the whole thing again with me. Um, so I think, and I really appreciate that, Sean, because I, we hear about it and, and some, and people, you know, guffaw the sensitivity and the cultural readings and things like that. It's because they don't understand what the hell they're talking about. And they don't. And and so giving that concrete example, I think is very helpful. So we go through the revision process. We have that person and, and, and those people from consulting from a gaming perspective, consulting um, from a sensitivity perspective during all of this, you have play testing occurring. Can I get a sense of what the play test process is like? So we actually aren't doing play tests during this, during this part of it. Um, the creator may be playtesting, but we're not open playtesting yet. At this point, uh, we generally haven't even announced it yet. This is when we still have it just in our hands and we're still working with it to, to get it ready to playtest. Um, the often a game will have come to us when it's already been publicly released, like StuPot had already been publicly released. And so during this period, we're not messing with that at all. If, right. it's, if it's someone's already put an itch page up, we just let that be. We're not going to change anything. Once we announce it, Formally, which is usually our open play test, that's when we have asked the creator to close that down, point them to the evil hat page, uh, tell folks if they want to play it, the play test is open and ha- how to get it that way. Um, we also always honor early sales. So if somebody bought the game, uh, uh, for instance, Thirsty Sword Lesbians, April had it for sale on itch well before evil hat right. got involved. And so anyone who bought it from her, uh, she she stopped sales, but anybody who bought it from her before she stopped them, we honor that. They That's can great. Yeah, because we just like if you bought it once, it's the right thing to uh, do. You get it right. Uh, anywho, so once 
all the consultation, both cultural and develop and system development is done. And the, the, uh, the, the writer has made all the revisions, then we start getting it ready for playtest. So we'll do a lightweight edit. That's mostly just trying to ensure that it's readable, that there's no major grammatic or spelling errors, that everything, the clarity is there. We don't need it to be perfect because we know this text is going to change yep. any time, but it's uh, just to get it uh, in a, a digestible format. Playable. Yep. What's that? Get it playable. Exactly. And then uh, we ask our editors to use markup, which is like a pseudo HTML like code, you know, where we tag everything so that our uh, graphic designers uh, can uh, import that in and apply styles to it automatically. So if you're familiar with InDesign or other, other uh, layouts, app software, uh, you might have a paragraph style for heading or for or a, a, a character style that says this is bold and italic or something mm-hmm. like that. And instead of the layout artist having to apply all those changes, uh, all those things one by one, we have the editor uh, mark the headings with a heading tag. And and just like you kind of would imagine with HTML. Yeah. And so then when it goes into layout, it's all there. The, the layout artist just needs to decide, well, what does a heading one look mm-hmm. like? What does a heading two look like? And, um, and so, and then once they change that, it changes across the whole document. Um, uh, anyway, at this stage, we want a layout that is clean, easy to read, but not at all the final result. Um, we're now working with, uh, Chris Viana, who is a amazing, uh, graphic designer who is so good that even her playtest layouts look like <laughs> this could be a final thing. Uh, so Chinjang right now, like she made it and Banana and the whole team that was on it was like, oh my God, it's amazing. And I'm like, this is just the beginning. Like Crystal wow. didn't do it, but this is, she made a light mode and a dark mode for it. You know, just too many bells and whistles, honestly. It was amazing. But, but we'll, we'll, you know, have the layout artist make the layout. We'll have them make a character sheet so that it's playable. And then, uh, and then we have it, what we consider like a playtest packet that's ready. And actually, that's not true. There's a few more things to go onto it. The other thing that goes in the playtest packet is a feedback form. Right. So I have a semi-generic feedback form that I will create a new copy of. It's a Google Doc, a Google form. And uh, I will ask the creator to modify it to ask questions that they need answered for the playtest. And so I'll have this long Google form. I'll create a Discord server just for the playtest. And we'll round up all these links, the sign up link, the feedback link, the link to the files, the link to the discord. And we announce that on the, on use it. We, then we engage the evil app marketing engine. Everybody. So, you know, we are now publishing, you know, as the sun forever sets or whatever, whatever games we're publishing. And if you're interested, uh, you can play test it now. Cause we always like to have our announcements have some kind of call to action. We don't want to just say we're doing a thing. We want to say we're doing a thing. Here's how to get involved. Uh, and so we aim for about 250 people signing up to play test. Wow. I've had as few as like a hundred and as many as like 1250. Unbelievable. It's, it's a lot. Uh, but you know, it always narrows down. There's X number of people will sign up and then of them, a smaller subset Y will actually play the game. And of them, a smaller subset Z will actually submit feedback. So you kind of have to, it's a numbers game. It's a numbers game. Yeah. Um, but uh, we set up, uh, an automated, as soon as they fill out the form, um, they get sent the files, they get sent a discord invite and, uh, we have a 
a server just dedicated for them to be able to talk, for the playtesters to be able to talk amongst themselves and to ask questions, both of Evil Hat and at the creator. Um, sometimes I have to shield the creator a little bit. Sometimes they get a little bombarded by folks. And so I would say, oh, um, you know what? We're going to close that channel. Just ask them to me and I will relay them because the creator doesn't have the, the sort of the spoons or the time or uh, the emotional energy to, to respond to those things. Because depending on the playlist group, you get some folks are really like, I'm so excited. And other times you get people who are like, I'm going to find every flaw in your yep. game I can win. You know? yep. and, and they're both, I, I guess they're both valid ways to play test. I'm not going to tell somebody you can't play test it because you're critiquing it. But sometimes we've gotten some like five, 10 page screes on, you know, why this game is wrong. And we're like, I actually think this is just in the game that you were hoping to play. Like maybe this, this game wasn't made for you. <laughs> yeah. And that's okay. Yep. Um, but we're not going to redesign it completely. You know, we're not going to throw away the important tenant pillars of the game. So real quick on this one, Sean, because I've talked to a lot of creators about the playtest process, but this is unique in the sense that we have really two audience for the playtest, right? We have all of the playtesters, but we have right. evil hat and the creator. And how do you negotiate that? You gave us one example where you had to step step forward and say, all, all of it's going to come through me and then I will, then we will talk to the creator and we'll help negotiate that. And, and I don't want, we don't need specifics on this, but has there been situations where playtest evil hat feels one, one way as a result of something that came up in the playtest and the creator feels a different way? And, and how do you negotiate something like that? Sure. Yeah. So it's, it's usually not in this kind of, during the playtest period where that will happen. Yeah. So during the period, a playtester might say, hey, XYZ, uh, and the, the creator will respond back to them. But when it's all done, after the playtest window is closed, uh, we'll look at, the, we'll share the feedback, uh, both what's said in Discord. We really try to get people to capture their thoughts in the, in the forums right. because, you know, what's said in Discord can easily be lost. But we try to capture as much as we can in the feedback forums to the point where I say, literally fill out a form don't answer any of the questions except for the do you have any other thoughts at the end and just copy paste this big thing out of discord in there so that we can so we don't lose it yeah because i don't want to you know um i don't want to uh uh lose it down the line and um and so at that point we'll we'll have feedback and the number of times that the feedback we've gotten is something we wanted to respond to and the creator didn't. I can probably count on one hand. Sure. Like it's not often, but the few times that it has where we said, yep, I think it's really important. Um, the way that we've come to the, the way we've reconciled that and, and the creator did, you know, the creator said, I don't want to do it. And we said, we think you need to. The way we've reconciled that is usually by saying, let's assume the playtesters are really good at finding out things that don't work for them and really bad about telling you what to do about it. Right. right? And most people, most creators will go, yeah, I agree. That that sense. So like, okay, they had a problem with this thing. Now, their fix, you don't have to agree with. But let's acknowledge that this gave them some challenge. So does that mean creating more examples to explain it better? Does that mean putting a disclaimer that says like, yes, this is what I'm trying to do. This is intentional. This is not an accident. Right. Does that mean um, creating some other modes of play where you can give people some options? Because usually if we're really at a point where the creator's like, no, I don't want that. That's because it's a pillar of the game. And they, yep. they, they really feel that that would change what the game is saying, the message about it. And that, that's not what we want either. Right. So 
on occasion or two, that's been the end. You know, there's been, there's been, uh, I think two games where we got to this phase and we're like, man, I don't know how to go forward. And, uh, and we've had to cancel contracts, you know, it's a bummer. Uh, people keep their advances. People keep the text. We hand it back to them. We say, cool, keep the money that we gave you in the beginning. You own all rights to the text. You know, we're not going to do anything with it. Uh, it's very rare, but you know, but, but it has happened. But most of the time, it's really just a matter of figuring out like, okay, we acknowledge that this was a problem. Let's throw away whatever they might have said about how to fix it. And let's talk internally about what we could do. And a lot of times, it is just a matter of communication about clarity. It's not like, this did a thing I hated. Um, and when it has been a this did a thing I hated, they've been long talks. You yeah. know? I, don't know, I don't want to sugarcoat it. They've been like, okay, let's get on a call for an hour or two. And let's, let's pass some drafts back and forth. And let's keep talking until we find like a place where... Because ultimately, it comes down to our personal value judgments. It comes down to like, do we as a publisher and as a game designer agree with that statement? Is, is, it, is it one that we care about? And uh, is it one that we want to honor? Because uh, some things we don't think are put in good faith. You know, someone like, you can't do this. And we're like, yeah, we can. And we're good. <laughs> as a matter of fact. You know, I mean, there were several people who didn't like the no fascist allowed statement and they're sort of lesbians. We're like, yeah, that's okay. You can not like that. You can say that this is a horrible game because we tell people that, uh, you know, who, who we think should play it and who shouldn't. And uh, yeah, that's all right. Yeah, good, good news. There's a ton of games out there that don't say it. And if that's, if that's, yeah, a, no, exactly. if that's, if that's a deal breaker, then you've got still a lot of games you can go out there and play. And, and one thing too, that I think is important um, at least to note, and we don't have to get into it is this also has to be a challenge for the creator. I would imagine too, Sean, because sure. this is a first time. I mean, this is lifeblood, right? This has been something that's very important to them. It's been a, it's been part of them for a lot longer than it's been part of evil hat and to now have a huge volume of feedback, which they've never had before, right? Cause they've just hadn't yeah. had access to that before to yeah. have the publisher have a qualified voice in this process that they have to negotiate with and, and through, um, I would imagine for you as the project manager, Sean, you, you have to be, you have to be sensitive to the creator in that process too. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and I'm not saying you kind of kid glove them, but you have to acknowledge the fact that th- this may not be easy. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's really important. I mean, when I've been working with Ray uh, on multiple games, uh, you know, we, we published Apocalypse Keys. We're working on another game right now that we'll be announcing. Um, probably three or four months. Um, and, uh, you know, Ray, Ray called out to me that like, uh, his experience of, you know, uh, his experience working with other people in the industry, but specifically like luminaries, authorities, uh, white people who think they know everything, you know, yep. uh, that those are not always the same category, but or the same, same folks, right. but certainly, um, you know, uh, his experience of like being in a post-colonial, uh, you know, his experience with colonialism is, is that it's difficult to tell. And I think this is true for anybody, but I think it's, it can be very difficult to tell somebody with a, in a, an authority, in a position of authority or in a per- perceived position of authority that, uh, no, I don't want to make that change. Yep. You know, no, I don't want to do that. And so there are a lot of times where I will, uh, either qualify something myself. Like I'll look at something and go, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll put a comment like, yeah, I don't think we, I think we can ignore this. I think this is, 
this is somebody trying to get in the driver's seat and do design and they're not giving useful feedback. So a lot of times I have personally like qualified something that I don't think needs to be heavily weighted. Like I'll say like, I think this, you know, this, this in terms of your, uh, how much time and thought you put into this, this, this doesn't need to be heavily weighted versus this really, this is an accessibility issue. This right. was a, that, that needs to be heavily weighted. So, so I'll put my finger on the scale for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll also sometimes bring back the developmental consultant if they're like, you know, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to read this hmm. because we have somebody else who's like a pseudo, you know, who's also sort of an expert in this game right. at this point because of their time with it. And so we'll get, we'll get their, uh, feedback on it. Uh, but absolutely. I think there's a lot of sensitivity that's important to have in this, in this stage because it can just be a deluge. It yeah. can just be like, Oh my God, this waterfall of feedback. And I don't know how to rate which of it I should take seriously, which of it I should ignore, which of it is sacrosanct. Um, and, uh, sometimes many times what we've done is said, okay, instead of giving you all of this, I'm going to dump it all into a doc and then I'm going to parse through it. I'm going to try and, uh, summarize some things or, uh, or, or combine some things to say the same thing, or frankly, sometimes just kick out stuff that I think is, you know, not said in good faith. Well, and and experience is super important here because I would admit one of the things that's great about evil had is how many first time. How many first time people have been published through you, right? That this is their first published game through Evil Hat. But it's a huge value, I think, Sean, in my perspective, that you have done this before. This is not the first time that I've had a hundred pieces of feedback from playtest before. It's the first yeah. time that you, Craig, have or Ray or whatever. But I've done right. this before, and and to be able to leverage and bring that expertise in um, ha- has got to be important. I hope so. I, I mean, that, that's, that's my genuine intent as working with somebody is that we don't overwhelm them, that we don't bombard them with content. And I've definitely had times, um, you know, sometimes the Discord servers on these playtest groups are a little chirp here, a little chirp there, a few posts, and sometimes they're just bombarding the creator. And I definitely have check-ins. I, I, I weekly check in with everybody on every project. So every Tuesday morning at eight o'clock, Sean sends out 15 emails to every to one per project to everybody there. And it's like, Hey, how's it going? How's progress with this coming? But also like, are you running into any issues? Yeah. And with a play test with the creators, I'm often, not often, I'm sometimes checking in to say like, how is this load okay? going for you? Yeah. And some of them really like embrace it, <laughs> you know, um, uh, you know, Strash and John LL who are, working on project Perseus right now, uh, you know, someone will come to them and be like, Hey, I don't like this. And they'll be like, this is why we did it. And this is this. And here's what, you know, and they, they they'll, they enjoy that challenge. Cause they, they'll look at it as like, maybe I'll learn something new. Maybe I will, uh, you know, they, they're okay. They're fine defending it and, or, or, or going, Oh yeah, that's a good idea. But they don't but, but mind. Strash is unique in that scenario, right? Because Strash started as a play tester. Uh, has been through this process several times. Like, yeah. like that's different than, than somebody who's brand new. So I, I just love yeah. that you have that huge spectrum and you have to cater to that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, d- with different creators and different projects, yeah. the amount of uh, support that we're giving on a logistics level, like parsing the data on an emotional level, yeah. like, yeah, let's just get on a call and talk about it. 
uh, it really varies. Yep. And, and it's something that is important to us to do to the level that's needed for the project. And so, you know, what that means is that some projects like just take more or less <laughs> energy. And frankly, if I'm being honest about it, it's about who I want to support whether I'll put that extra energy into it. So, you know, if we look at the difference between Apocalypse Keys and Deathmatch Island, um, I'm willing to spend a lot more time supporting Ray than I am Tim. Um, you know, I took, I took Deathmatch Island because it was a slam dunk, no brainer, brilliant game. But Tim is a white guy who's well to do is not somebody that I feel that I need to, that I, I, I want to, I mean, everybody's resources are limited and I want, it's not somebody that I want to give a huge amount of resources yep. to. So if he had come with a game that needed a ton of work, that all kinds of issues that I thought was going to be really hard to get across the finish line, I don't know that I would have taken it. Right. Um, and so we really do the, when we're considering games to publish and also when we're investing our time and energy into them, we really do focus on like who it is that we want to, to give that energy to and give that, give that time to, you know, um, John Harper is a brilliant game designer and I would love to publish anything he needs. But I also like expect that John is going to like carry a lot of right. weight himself. Like, like yeah. I'm like, you got this, John. Uh, and if he doesn't and he needs longer, well, as I said, we got time in the park. Yeah. You know, that's like and credit to, to all of you on this one, because it'd be, you know what? Your life would be a lot easier if you just published John's game and Tim's game. Right. The, the, right. Because they're going to bring stuff to you that's fully and, and Strash, too. Right. Like they're going to they're going to bake it for you. There's not going to be a whole lot of thing. But I love the fact that Evil Hat and you, all of you together, have made the decision of we're, we're not going to give everybody equal effort here. There's going to be some creators that come in here that deserve and need more attention and, and more support than others. And I love the fact that that's acknowledged from the very beginning. And the end result, you end up putting out some pretty freaking amazing games that may not get made anywhere else. Um, yeah. And Thirsty Lesbians is a perfect example of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I think there's a lot of other publishers doing some very amazing things. And so I don't want to, I don't know, I don't want to pat ourselves on the back too hard, but I am very proud of the games that we've made and the decisions we've made around publishing them. And, you know, there's there, if you, if you take any DEI class, you'll see that like infographic about equality versus equity, you know, and that like equality may mean giving everybody the same resources, but equity is about giving people the resources that they need to meet people at the place there and that's that's what we're really trying to to, to trying to strive for it's is, is equity justice you know that, that, like we, we want to go we don't just want to say you know it's one size fits all because it, it's every piece of every game you make is an artistic creation so there's no right there's never a one size fits all to begin with but there's certainly not when it comes to um the 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 needs of the creator and the needs of the game they they both vary so much and I, and I and I appreciate the transparency of that as well um and I think that then when we're talking about uh, the equity piece there I think transparency uh, transparency is an important part small example is when um I'm I'm casting for my actual plays patron sure. patrons always get first dips um right. and it's first come first serve but I also say those that have never played before will trump anybody who has played before. Yeah. And diversity is considered. And yeah. I'm just transparent about that. Like, hey, like here's the here's that's the deal. And I think that's an important part of of this. You you really if you want to make I, I feel if you want to make any difference, you absolutely have to put your thumb on the scale to support people who haven't been supported. Because if you say everybody's welcome, 
a bunch of cis white dudes show up. And it's not that other people won't, but they won't even have somebody else might take a, a minute to think like, should I do this? Am I qualified? Would this be fun? And by the time they've had that thought process, 50 people have, have, yep. have filled the spot. And, and I, I know this from, well, my personal experience with this is when the Fate Worlds line came out. Uh, Fate Core was very successful. It was our, it was, you know, a $3,000 Kickstarter that we made over uh, 300,000 on, you know, it was, it was a phenomenal event. But what it meant is we committed to tons and tons of things, <laughs> so many things. And one of the things we committed to was uh, creating all these Fate Worlds, which were, you know, custom, uh, settings with custom mechanics and pre-built characters, all these things. And we made several fate worlds as part of it. And then we decided to continue the line in the fate worlds and adventures line that was powered by our Patreon. And we did that for two years, I think, at least like over 50 of them. It was, there's a lot of, they're all pay what you want. So it's tons of fate content that you can play for free right now. But when we first, this was 2013. Maybe 2014. I was brand new to this. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. <laughs> we put on an open call and said, Hey, do you want to make some fake content? Submit your thing here. And it was just a flood of cisset straight white dudes. Yeah. And and there were a few people that weren't. There were a few that weren't, but it was just and we didn't realize until we were 20 into it that we're like, oh man, uh wow, all of our creators are are white guys. What oof, what we didn't we didn't even realize it until we stopped to take a look you know and and we pivoted and we really focused on bringing we started we stopped the open call and we started bringing in people that we knew we already wanted to work yeah. with and we started taking referrals and we started uh re- you know recruiting folks but it it wasn't until we made the effort to increase our representation in that we actually started doing it and so it it is an effort it isn't a you know you really have to you have to choose what you're what, what you're trying to focus on and so um and we could and i'll be you know sean we could do a series of podcasts about this. this is a very big subject and a very serious subject that extends way beyond uh you know tabletop role role playing absolutely but, yeah. but the one thing that i that i think is significant here that i don't hear said enough and then we're going to move on is that you end up with a better product because of this yeah. so this isn't just warms and fuzzies this isn't just social justice. This isn't just all of that's part of this, right? Us wanting to do the right thing. But guess what? You know what the best part is, is that we end up with a better product when we're done, right? Like, so part of the, you know, there's two reasons why I want diversity on my cast as much as possible and my live streams. One for the, everything that we just got done talking about. And two, because it makes for a better game. It makes for a better watch. we wouldn't thirsty sword lesbians was never going to be written by anybody but april right and it's a fucking amazing game it, really is. it is so the the emotional arcs of the playbooks is like one of the best pieces of tech that i've ever seen in any game and i will i would happily steal that and put it in any game just the notion that like every character has an inherent uh, uh emotional you know, challenge thing to get through. And then when you're done resolving that, you can change playbooks to the next sort of emotional arc. Um, The fact that when you flirt with people, it's mechanized. So it's like, aha, when you do flirt with somebody immediately reveal some reason as to why your, your romance could never work so that you like immediately create this like sexual romantic tension. Like that is such brilliant tech. And uh, I mean, I guess somebody else could have made it. I, I can't, 
I can't say, you know, I'm not a prophet, but, but April's one who did it. It was a unique voice. It was a unique voice. And there's a reason that that game has gotten the attention it has and why it's referred to within the creator community all of the time. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it's what I call a Tom Waits, which is it's the it's the creator's creator. Right. It's it's what people that are making things refer to all the time in the same way that musicians yeah. love Tom Waits, even though Tom Waits is, you know, has barely sold any albums. Um, yeah, it was the analogy. All right. Yeah, so they, go ahead. they see that inspiration. And exactly. It feels so much more design. Yeah. Place testing is done. Yeah. Um, uh, what's we next? Get all this, we get all this feedback. <clears throat> we parse it as we've been discussing. Yep. The creator makes revisions as needed. Um, sometimes we'll bring back in the developmental consultant, but usually they're at a place where they know what they want to do and they'll, they'll make revisions. Then we'll bring it to a sensitivity reader. Earlier on when I said, you know, we might or might not bring in the, the cultural consultant, depending on how we need, you know, what was needed at this point, we, we always bring in a sensitivity, sensitivity reader. And sometimes we do it. You know, sometimes we'll have multiple sensitivity readers because no one's, you know, nobody can cover all perspectives. And so depending on the needs of the game, we might want somebody who is, can talk about mental health. Or we might want somebody who can talk about, uh, you know, how, how that's depicted or, um, or, uh, you know, racial equity issues or, you know, every game is going to vary. And, uh, so we usually bring in one to three sensitivity readers that are going to read it over and give their feedback. And at this stage, um, you know, they're often doing word choice as well. Um, but they're also, you know, it, it's often small refinements. Um, sometimes they have identified like, you need to include a section about this because you didn't address this issue, you know? And so additional content will be created. But um, it's really a, a check, you know, do, do, do we miss anything along the way? Have we slipped? Have we gotten off course? And they're often, you know, help us get back on course at that point. And Sean, do you have a, do you have a stable of sensitivity readers that you work with? Um, like where, where do these people come from? You know, there was once upon a time, this Google doc that lived out in the world that had like thousands of sensitivity readers on it. And I looked at it and I pulled a few people off of it. And then as soon as I did that, there was, this was, it wasn't uh sensitivity reader specifically for games. It was, it was for uh, authors. And as soon as, it was like two months after I had found out about it and I started using it. Uh, there was a big kerfuffle and they took it down. And I was like, no, I wish I made a copy of that dog. <laughs> it was so sad. Uh, but yeah, so now we, we have a roster of 15 or 20 folks that we know. And we often get recommendations either from the author because they'll, they know somebody else who's kind of working in the field um, or from other folks that we work with. And so we, we very often have, you know, some suggestions up front. And then if we don't, the nice thing is, uh, and this is why I really lament Twitter just going into the toilet mm. is that, uh, you know, in the past we've used social media as a way to, to scout for folks and, and look yeah. at what people are doing and find somebody says they're a sensitivity reader and their profile. And then we'll look on the website and see what work projects they've worked on. And then we'll, you know, look at those games or look at those products or well, um, ask folks that they've worked with and, uh, and, uh, and then reach out. And so a right. lot of it is word of mouth. I mean, a lot of publishing is word of mouth. Mm -hmm. um, I'd say, yeah, for, for a long time, it was also social media, but that's become so fractured. That's really hard to say. Uh, it's, you know, it's really hard to say 
uh, where to look uh, yeah. these days. Um, if you go to work.evilhat.com, I think it's either that or evilhat.com slash work, one of those two. There's a there's a, a Google form if if you if you're interested in working with that in any of your roles and want us to you know add you to our potential roster, you got a Google form there where you can submit your portfolios and, and things like that. So uh, we look at that as well. So we look at you know people who have reached out and said, hey, I'd like to work with you, and you know we'll see their stuff. So you finalize the text as much as it's going to be finalized at this point, right? And now we're going to transition into more of the design aspect of it. Um, which is layout and art. So how, what's that next step? So we put it, we put for now, we put a cap on the, on, on, on the words. And now we're going to go into the look. There's one more word piece, which yeah. is very involved actually, which is the final editing. This is the final uh, layout, uh, the final uh, line and copy edit and also markup. And so it'll be back and forth editing uh, the final text then revision, you know, back and forth between the editor and, and, the, and the creator to revise. Then it goes into another round of markup. And this is final markup. And then it goes into layout. And mm. pretty much from this point on, the editing on, this is what I consider finishing work. And finishing work is much more quantifiable. A lot of work before this is creative work. Even though we right. say, oh, we want a game that's ready, it's not really ready. Yep. We're still doing tons of edits. But at this point, we're not editing the game anymore. We're finishing it. And now we can start locking things down. We go, okay, this edit should probably take a month and a half and give you two more weeks for revisions, then another two weeks to do a final edit. Cool. That's when we shout it ready. Um, then it goes to our, you know, once the markup is done, it goes to our graphic designer. And our graphic designer will, uh, because it has this markup, they can drop it fairly quickly into layout, but then they still need quite a bit of time to make sure the page flow is right. You know, if there's a little snippet here that's running over on a page, they will sometimes go back to the creator and say, hey, we need to cut like five words to make this fit <laughs> right. Or we have a little bit of blank space. But then they're also dropping in placeholders. Uh, generally, our rule of thumb is an image or a table every other page. Yep. Yeah, that's, your mileage may vary with that. But we, 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 we try to keep our text fairly image heavy. You know, We want people to see what we're talking about on the page. Yep. And so... We're dropping placeholders in and we're dropping them in an intelligent fashion. So this is a section about, you know, armies facing off on the battlefield and maybe we'll drop a, a wide, short image so that you can see a battlefield with two armies on either side of it. Right. You know, we can imagine that, that art being drawn. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll create uh, all these placeholder images. And then once... The layout is done. We'll send it to the creator, have them make any kind of revisions they want. Then we have a, a layout draft that's ready to go and it gets split into three places. So mm. one place it goes to is proofreading because basically you could just never edit your text enough. You will always yeah. find lawyers. Even, even editor, Karen is an edit, is one of the best editors I've ever worked with. And one thing that she'll do is even once she, her job's technically done, she's not proofreading. She still looks at it again because there's things that she'll miss in text that will show up in layout. And she'll just go, Oh, I, I don't know how I didn't miss that before, but now it's obvious. And so it shall be. So, but we'll also send it to a proofreader who is proofing it. We send it to an indexer who's indexing it. And then we send it to an art director. And that's the, the, the lion's share of the work or the, the majority of the work in this time window is the art because the art director will um, create an art inventory doc that is, 
a list of every place there's a page, page, a placeholder in the doc, along with the dimensions and the bleeds. So is this mm. again, the top edge, the right edge, the left edge, the bottom edge? Um, and uh, does this image need to be uh, filled in background or transparent background? And then they will uh, work with the creator. Sometimes creators, if it's like stretch goals for something like that, we'll have lots of creators in, the, in, the, in this period, but they'll work with the, the creators uh, who will make like an art request doc. They're like, I'd like these kind of things. You know, the creators give pretty wide ideas of the, the art they have in mind. And then the art director codifies that and writes an art order or an art brief Interesting. that will go to an artist. And so your inventory doc says, here's how big every piece is. And that figures out our pay scale. You know, if it's half page, quarter page, et cetera, um, or a portion of a page that it is. And here's the kind of general, like what's happening in the text in that section. But then the art director fills out the full, this is the, they felt the technical specs, like we need 600 DPI, CMYK, right. you know, art with, with quarter inch bleeds, et cetera. But most importantly, fill out the, the creative component, which is like, this is heavily inspired by Steven Universe and Shiro. We want lots mm-hmm. of, we have lots of purples and pinks. Here's some existing art that we are inspired by. Here's what we want in this piece. It's a sen- it's a lion centaur, you know, and 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 uh, what's going on in the in, in the image. Um, Who's making sure that the look and feel is consistent at this point? Because it's not only just the art that's chosen that's created, the layout, the 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 format of the page, like all of that holistically. Um, who's is there somebody who's boss over all of that or is am i making sense yeah no totally makes sense and the the answer is there's kind of we have to live in a fluid world where there's sort of many bosses so there are there are uh basically three authorities in this in this uh three and a half three three or four authorities in this so fred hicks our president is the product authority fred is going to say that won't catch people's eyes. That cover won't catch people's eyes in a books in a game store. We right. need something that is bolder, brighter, etc. Um, we have the creator who's the, the creative authority on it, saying, like, I need to see, you know, the cover of Thirst or Lesbians. Like, I need to see these two people with swords locked, but looking at each other like they just want to kiss, right? Like yep. that is that is what this game is about. We have myself who is the contract authority. I'm like, we can afford this much money, we can get this <laughs> much time, you know. Um, and then the, the the fourth authority is the art director, who is an authority when it comes to working with the artists themselves. They're the ones who are going to send the artists back. Nope, make this revision, do this. But they ultimately kind of have to, not kind of, they ultimately have to work with Fred, the creator, and myself to right. make sure it's meeting all those other criteria. Um, and so there's there's a lot of cooks in this kitchen. And that is because exactly what you said. There's so much holistically that matters that we need yeah. a lot of perspectives. We can't yeah. just have, sometimes creators have have visions that don't translate well immediately, but a good art director can take that and go, okay, this is how that could work on a page. Um, and sometimes, um, uh, you know, even after that happens, we will realize like, yeah, but that isn't going to serve our marketing needs. You know, like yeah. at the end of the day, the front cover of the book is marketing. Uh, we changed the front cover of Girl by Moonlight. We had one. We ended up switching it around uh, to to be one that we felt like we we still use the art. We 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 built we put it in somewhere else so it didn't get lost. Mm-hmm. But 
we, uh, you know, we just looked at it and we're like, it's beautiful, but it does not punch enough. It was right. too painterly. It wasn't comic enough. The colors weren't bold enough. And so we recommissioned a new piece. And it was after it was all done. And we just kind of looked back and went, no, we need to, you know, we need to dive back into that. Um, so that was, uh, that was one of those cases where, you know, would have loved it if we'd caught it earlier, but sometimes you just have to commission more art. You know, that, that's something that you do. And after this, we obviously finalize everything and we sent, quote unquote, send it to the printer, right? We close things down. What I want to get a sense of uh, before we wrap up this segment, um, which has been incredibly informative, Sean, right. thank you, Absolutely. is um, so exactly why I wanted you on the show, is where there's so there's something else happening here. Yeah. And that's that we got to sell this damn thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's do this in the context of it's going to be crowdfunded. When. Where in this long snake of a process that we've talked about, when does that start? When do we start going, okay, we need to now start up the marketing engine? Yeah. So our perspective on crowdfunding is that we, uh, we used to call it kick finishers. We want to we crowdfund something that is nearly ready. Yeah. And uh, we do that for a couple of reasons. One, it's tax, uh, tax reasons. We would really like to ship out the product for the money we received in the same fiscal year. Makes sense. Uh, if, we can, if we can get money in and then pay for all the books and all the printing, it makes our taxes much easier to do. <laughs> we don't have to deal with deferrals and all this yep. stuff. Um, so that's just a simple version. Two, we like to make our, our customers happy. You know, a Kickstarter that ships within six months is our crowdfunding project that shifts in six months is is pretty satisfying, right? A lot of people are like, oh, I just backed this and I have it already. I didn't, yeah. it wasn't three years later and it finally exactly. arrived. So, you know, and uh, four, it just kind of fits our, it's our fits the way we manage things. So right. um, when we crowdfund something, the day one, update one, the moment we launch, there is a link to a uh, a PDF that is everything but the art. It's the full thing, all the text, edited, laid out. It is playable. The character sheets are there. You can play it immediately. We didn't touch on Roll20 and creating character sheets there, but no, we'll have done that as well. Yep. So we'll often say, here's the PDF you can play from. Here is uh, character sheets in Roll20. And we've even built a, built a free Roll20 quick start to kind of like with some of the art and a few other things to kind of just get, get you playing online yeah. uh, immediately. And so for us, it's really once that layout draft is complete, that's when we can, that's when we could crowdfund it. Um, right. We're before that point, we've engaged, you know, we've already talked to our marketing, uh, you know, our marketing department, which is Tom. Uh, <laughs> you know, Tom is queuing, we're, we're reaching out to Backerkit or whoever we're crowdfunding with and we're telling them about it. We're building the campaign in the background. We are, Telling our graphic designer to be building a bunch of graphic assets. Mm. Uh, depending on the project, sometimes we're doing a lot of crowd outreach where we're talking to streamers about running their, you know, running it on their channels, or we're uh, trying to get interviews lined up. Right. Um, that you know, with Codex of Worlds, we barely did it. We're like, you know <laughs> what, Monster of the Week has has a ton of fans. We don't need to do all this stuff. But with Girl by Moonlight, brand new game, uh, first time creator, you know, we really wanted to give it everything we got. So we we did a ton of, we lined up tons of interviews, natural plays, and all kinds of things with Andrew and sponsored a bunch of streams and really went all at it. But uh, 
that planning for us, because we've done it so many times, it usually takes like two months. I think if it's the first time you probably want to give it four to six, just because Mm -hmm. like you don't have, you know, a list of people just to reach out to and say, Hey, will you straighten this? Right. You've got to find that list and build it up. But usually a couple months beforehand, we are starting to sow the seeds of it, letting, getting it prepared. And then once that, uh, art incomplete, uh, you know, that, uh, oh, we'll also commission some kick from some crowdfunding art. So we mm-hmm. commission uh, a cover. We usually commission the iconic characters, like the playbooks or whatnot, the character art, and maybe a scene or two. And that right. way, the book isn't completely art-free. But more importantly, we have art to use in the crowdfunding campaign. Yeah. So you know, because art sells books. End of the day, people will play the game because it's a good game, but they will buy the book because it's got a pretty cover, right? Like Great way to put it. That's just our experience. So. Yeah, so it's while art is being developed that we are, and we have, you know, the indexing happening, the proofreading happening, the art happening. That's when we're crowdfunding. It also means that our backers are sort of our last line of defense and uh, typo finding. <laughs> yep. Because at this point, if they find anything, they can report it to us and we can still fold it in and make change. We haven't, you know, we haven't totally finalized it got it but my goal is by the time the crowdfunding ends which is a month or so we're already a ways into our art um you know within a couple months after that the art's finished and we can send it off to the printer and that's how we get the six month to six to nine month ish window of yeah we crowdfunded it and boom then it goes to you know goes to the printer um but that's all happening there's a lot of stuff happens all at once and it is a little it's busy making. I can tell you. I bet. It's you know, for a six-person group, we have a graphic designer who's like, "I need you to be doing layout, but also I need you to be making roll twenty assets, but also I need you to be making crowdfunding <laughs> assets." And we really try to keep it measured and not do pile too much on at once. But you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes you have to uh, get done. You just have to <laughs> swallow, eat the whole elephant, right? You got to, you got to just do it all. And so, as we close out here, Sean. Um, what we've just talked about is how you do it today. Mm-hmm. Can you go back in time and think of what you've learned? So in the time, in the years that you've been doing this with evil hat, what have you personally learned in your role that really stands out? What do you do now that you didn't do before? What did you used to do that you don't do now? Yeah. There's so many ad hoc things. We used to just kind of, Oh, I guess we should do that. Yeah, crap. Let's 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 do it. Uh, whoops. That are now just ingrained into our process. So since yeah. community reading was not always in that was not always a process. The distinction between the art inventory and the art order used mm. to just be like make art, make an art order. But now having a lay a spreadsheet with all of the the, the pieces that are needed just creates so much clarity there. Um, the uh, system development consultation used to be like, well, the creator just sort of knows what their game should be. And then we'd run into problems down the line. We're like, wait, these mechanics don't match up. Like, oops, you know, and we'd we'd be backfilling it uh, much later than we wanted. You know, Shadow of the Century, we had three rounds of playtesting. You know, that was a lot. This is the most we've ever done. But that was just like, I don't think we got it the first time. We didn't get it the second time. Oh, we finally got it the third time. You know, that, that game took a really long time to make. And, and that's it's in part because, you know, a lot of these processes just weren't in, in the mix. Yeah. Um, things that we, 
The other thing that we didn't do as much and we've done much more, which slowed things down, but I think in a good way, is that now we ask the we ask the creator, what's your idea for the layout before we ever start doing the layout? That makes you know, sense. We're like, what color schemes do you want? What mm. what kind are there fonts or things that you're really excited about? Are there are there other books that you really like and you want to see something similar? Because um Fred Hicks for the longest time did our 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 layout and Fred is a lovely human being and I will, I would uh, you know, go to battle for him. But he, once he's finished a whole layout, the last thing he likes hearing is like, Oh, I don't like it. Could you do it different? You know, <laughs> it's a frustrating thing to hear when you've put all this yeah. it is creative work. Layout is very yeah. creative. It takes a lot of energy. And, you know, part of that was just, we didn't ask the artist what they want or the creator, what mm. they wanted beforehand. We figured, Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll intuit it somehow. Well, of course, we got it right a little bit of the time and got it wrong quite a bit of the time and, and we had to make revisions. And now by asking people in advance, that allows Fred or now Chris, who's taken over that role to, to collaborate with the, the creator, figure out what they're all about and yeah. then do the layout design. And also we used to just do the whole thing in one pass or not one pass, but we do the whole thing and then show it to them. Now right. we'll show them like, this is what a character sheet would look like. This is what a page of text would look like. This is what, you know, other things look like. Do you want to make changes in the design phase yeah. before we actually drop everything in the layout? Um, I don't, I'm sure there's other, I'm sure, sure. there's a million other little things, but it's definitely the codifying of these phases that used to be much more ad hoc uh, that, oh, the other thing that I do is I just religiously send check-ins. I just, every yeah. week, Tuesday morning, eight o'clock. I, I have a calendar reminder for myself on Monday to write all the check-ins. I write them all. I hit schedule send. I schedule them to go out Tuesday morning, eight o'clock. I've missed them on occasion, you know, traveling or whatnot. Sure. But the it is, is a very different experience. I've been told this by many of the people I've worked with. It's a very different experience to be checked in with every week and say, Hey, how's it going? Can I help you out? Do you need? What's the progress on this? Then to only be checked in on when something's running late. Yep. You know, when if if I only reach out to you because you haven't turned something in, it feels punitive or like yep. you're in trouble. If I'm just saying this is the regular, this is how we keep open lines of communication, then even if something runs late, it doesn't feel like I'm just reaching out because of that. And people who work with me know that I am. Unless we're in that finishing state where we're at some tough deadline, I am very, very flexible where I say, yeah, we have enough stuff in the pipe. If this needs to take longer, it takes longer. That's okay. Uh, but I think it's hard to trust that if all you ever hear is, you know, you're late, when's it going to come in? And that's not a good feeling. No, it's not. And it's, um, it, it, it's extremely valuable. And that is something that everybody listening, that works everywhere. I use that all the time with my staff, right? I have weekly check-ins with my staff because. Not only is it just like you said, like if Craig, if Craig puts something in my calendar, oh my God, what is going on right now? Right, right. Versus trouble. Right. Versus this is the, this is my Wednesday, two o'clock with Craig. Right. Yeah. The other valuable thing there too, Sean, for me, and I wonder if it is for you is this isn't the first time we've talked about it. Cause we've been talking every week. Right. Yeah. So we're, we are, we're hitting the ground running. So when a problem appears, we probably have been talking about this problem on the horizon. It's getting yeah. closer. How are we doing? This is not the first time we've talked about it. Yeah, yeah, and and there's definitely times where we have these check-ins. Then that then that triggers for me, you know, an internal an internal check with the rest of the hat where I go, right. hey, Fred, what are your thoughts on bringing on another person to do this? Hey, Chris, could you create some a character sheet 
an early mock-up of a character sheet so that this creator can kind of wrap their head around what it's going to look like. Hey, Tom, can you spread the word? We don't have enough playtesters for this playtest yet. Can you put a newsletter out to remind people about it? And so I can then uh, try and you know use our internal resources uh, in between checks as well. So the yep. next time we talk about it, I can say, hey, good news. We've got XYZ resources, or I found an editor, or I found a this, you know. Um, so it's it's infrequent enough that I can get some work done in between and so can creator, but it's frequent enough that, like you said, yeah, we're we're not there's not too many surprises. Sometimes right. things happen, life happens. Yeah. Um, but uh uh but a lot of times we are working through things bit by bit and it's not like you need to figure it all out one in one meeting. Yeah, yeah, no question. I'm gonna I'm I'm about to put you on the spot like big time, Sean. So I'm gonna apologize in advance. So um I'd like for you to open up the Evil Hat website for me real quick. All right, you got it. Hold Let on. me know when you're ready. Load in this page. Come on, Evil Hat. Don't 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 be slow for me right now. All right. <laughs> All right. All right. So there is a ton of games that's on that site right now that we've already talked about. There's yes, a yes. ton of games on that site that we don't need to talk about because everybody knows them, right? Yep. What I would love to hear from you when you look at this site, is there two or three games that it breaks your heart don't get more attention? Oh, boy. Um, yeah. So there's a couple that, yeah, there's, there's, there's one in particular that yeah. I guess I cry about every time. Uh, and that's War of Ashes, Fate of Aegyptus. Um, so many moons ago, the company Zombie Smith reached out to us and said, we have these really cute minis. Um, uh, they're these furry monsters. And we have this, they have this game where they all murder each other. It's all <laughs> driven by climate change. Like it's getting colder and there's less land for people to live on. And the cold is actually represented by these, these, it is not only colder, but there are these monsters called the cold, uh, which just, it's just the cold really. Uh, and they, and they just, they're adorable, but they're also, destructive and they just eat everything you know and there's these great pictures of one with like a bunch of swords and shields in their mouth and just chopping away at it and they ride these giant snails um they're super cute uh but they said we we want to make a we want to make a a rpg about this minis game and so we said okay let's try it so we used spade accelerated which is not a crunchy tactical game at all but we added we added froth mechanics and which is part of the game we added uh, zone aspects that made it really important to keep moving around throughout the battlefield. And we had tons of lore and Sophie Lagasse wrote it and her partner Edmund did all these little short story snippets of it. And we went back and forth for two years over and over and over again, designed this game and absolutely loved the game. And when we released it, we thought there was going to be like a marketing effort. We got, we got very, we didn't have a marketing plan. <laughs> we, we thought there was some other marketing that was going to happen. It didn't. We didn't crowdfund it. We didn't really talk about it. We just kind of went like, it's out. And nobody mm. knew about it and nobody bought it. And now it is only available in PDF because we had to mulch like a thousand copies because they were just <gasps> sitting in a warehouse and no one was buying them. And <sighs> we tried to give it love so many times. But the thing is, when you come out with a game... It has one short window to be new. And after that, it'll still sell well if it's, you know, if it's Blades in the Dark and people love it, you know, Blades sells yep. every day. That's great. 
But if no one's heard of it, no one's playing it, it's so hard to get people's attention. And we were paying for that warehouse space. And right. month after month, we we're paying for that warehouse space. And we finally went, you know, we'll sell it on huge discount. And we sold some that way. And we, we tried everything we could, but we never got a momentum behind it. And that game was so good. It was it was called Grimsical because it was it was both grim and whimsical. It was it was just so cute. It was these, these maniacal Muppets. Oh. And um, when we were up at Go Play Northwest, uh, they had this uh, free table where people putting out putting out games, and a, someone put a copy of it out there. And Karen grabbed it. She's like, "Every time somebody wants to, every time I can, I I want to give this to somebody when I when I hear about it." And we've run out of our copy. Like I had I had a bunch of copies, and I've given them all away. We were yeah. out. She's like, "I'm gonna grab this next time. I'm I'm chilling it. I'll give it to somebody <laughs> because." A lot of times we talk about it, somebody's like, oh, that's so cool. And we're like, yeah, but it's out, of, but it's gone. You know, we can't. Oh. you can still get the PDF, which is great. Yep. But, you know, there's something about having the, the dead tree in your hand that feels yep. really satisfying. Um, oh, my goodness. So that, that's a heartbreaker for me. You can find it, but it's not anywhere on our main page because we have resigned to the fact that <laughs> it is not ever going to be a big seller. And that's just, you that know, sucks. It sucks. It's, it, it makes me sad, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that's, that's the biggest uh, heartbreaker for me. Uh, I mean, I think the other game that I would, uh, that I think uh, had, its, had its swan song and, and is, you know, probably right now very much back catalog, but I think it's, it's just such a fun game as Bubble Gumshoe uh, by Emily Care Boss and Ken Height um, and Lisa Steele. They, uh, they did a great job of, Reproducing the Veronica Mars teenager uh, sleuth um, with all the with all the teen problems plus the mystery solution the mystery uh, solving of Gumshoe uh, and I think I think it's fun it's a fun romp so uh, and I think that's still that is still available in print it uh, is yeah maybe I, I, not for much longer I don't know I probably it will not get another run you know it, when, when it's sold out it'll be sold out but it's a very fun game and uh, I think it's just uh it had a, a, a brief moment in the, in the spotlight and it, that moment has passed. Well, and it's an opportunity to get something from Ken where someone's heart's not getting ripped out by page four, I mean, which is always good. <laughs> yeah. You know, you have to, um, yeah, most of the time it's not. Most time it's not. <laughs> All right, guys, we're going to take one more break. When we get back from this break, we're going to get to one of my favorite segments. We're going to find out what Sean's been grooving on. We'll be right back. Are you enjoying our long form interviews with creatives on this podcast? Maybe you're craving deeper discussions about our guests or some of the RPG plays on our Twitch and YouTube channel. Well, I've got an opportunity for you. You see, Third Floor Wars now has a Patreon only Discord server. You can join a vibrant community of like minded enthusiasts diving deep into every episode of our RPG plays and podcast. Connect with fans, engage in spirited discussions, and unlock the behind-the-scenes insights. For just a dollar a month, access a world of tabletop gaming goodness. Connect with passionate gamers who share your love for the tabletop podcast and everything produced on the third floor. As a Patreon supporter, you also enjoy ad-free episodes of this podcast. You can immerse yourselves in captivating stories and fascinating interviews without interruptions 
taking your listening experience to a whole new level. By joining the Third Floor Wars Patreon community, you not only gain exclusive access to the Patreon-only Discord server, but you also support the growth of my podcast and channels. Your contributions enable me to continue creating high-quality content that entertains, educates, and upskills tabletop enthusiasts like yourself. Maybe don't wait. Join the Third Floor Wars Patreon today and unlock a world of camaraderie, discussions, and knowledge. Visit patreon.com forward slash third floor wars or check the link in the show notes and come join our community. The Third Floor Wars Patreon-only Discord server awaits you. I and the other patrons can't wait to welcome you with open arms and a fistful of dice. So, Sean, this is uh, something that um, kind of organically came out of nowhere. It's become my one of my favorite segments in the show, and it's I like to find out what creators are eating. Um, yeah. So instead of just making stuff, what is stuff that's uh, that you're buying that you're consuming? So is there any books, movies, music, video games, RPGs or anything that just got its hooks into you and wouldn't let go recently? It's funny because one of the um one of the casualties of doing this work is that a lot of games that I play are play tests of games that we're my, we're thinking about publishing. Yeah. That's, that's, that's my, my dominant game that I'll play is whatever, whatever you have might be publishing. Um, and yep. so a lot of those, I can't talk about specifically either because we took a pass on them or because we accepted them, but we haven't uh, announced it, but we haven't announced it. But I will say there's two games. I'll just sort of, um, I'll just sort of highlight some elements of two games, and then I and then I can go into some actual titles. I can give you names of. Okay, like, good. You know, uh, yeah, you're I so think cryptic, Sean. I think on Andrew's uh, uh, interview, they said I'm into being gay. That that's the, that's the product I want to sell people. So I feel like if Andrew could say be gay, I could say like check out cool games. Um, yeah, I think that's 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 a fair that's a fair thing to shell. Um, <laughs> So one of them was a Paragon game, which already, you know, I'm like a little, a little predisposed to a little, a little bit, to, but it did this super cool thing with, uh, factions where, uh, one, if you work for a faction, they give you certain assets and those assets allow you to freeze dice. And so mm. you can, uh, basically, uh, uh, reduce some of the randomness in, because Paragon games can be very swingy. And yep. so. Um, they allow you to they allow you to, to lock a die in place rather than roll it. And and so you can just say, like, I'm using this resource from this faction. Uh, but if you do that, then um when you get glory or the equivalent of glory in, in this game, you have to share it with the faction. And oh. the players advances, but so do the factions. And they also can be opposing you. Like sometimes you're working with a faction and advancing them, but sometimes you're like fighting your own people. And mm. so they can also, so they also win challenges that you lose and they advance that way. And so there's this advancement that's happening on both sides of the spectrum. And it's got, it's, since there's so many important factions, it's seeing them achieve their goals and having them grow and having that make major turning points in the game is very exciting. And I just love this like new bit of tech. I'm like, Ooh, that I'm is so cool. Far. Yeah. And th- this is one we can't give the, the title of yet. I can't. I know. Okay. I all right. All cool. right. Well, something yeah. to look forward to. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 
That's okay. Um, but uh, I will. Um, okay, I have one more game that I can't talk about. Yeah, yeah. But there's a game that involves uh, sort of story mending, as it were. What does that mean? You, your characters who sort of travel through fictional narratives, their stories, other people's stories. So you you might go into a rom com, or you might go into some other uh, a princess story, right? And something's gone wrong. Something has kind of corrupted that story and so you're sort of interdimensional firefighters as it were and you oh. jump into genre and your characters are all very versed in em- genre emulation uh but it means that like you get to kind of play it's a little bit slidersy you get to kind yeah. of play in different sorts of genres each time you're playing and there's a both like wink and a nod to it like you can both be very in the genre and you can also sort of like step out and be like yeah but we're we're from another realm and uh anyway it's uh I had a lot of fun uh, playtesting that recently. That's and cool. Just, just cool to be like, aha, we're we're sort of this, but we're sort of that, and we we know what's going on. We're on the know. Um, it's very fun, uh, very fun framework for the game. Uh, okay, but some things that I'm grokking on that I can actually name rather than just say like play games. They're good. <laughs> um, I don't. I'm sure you know because uh, Allison's uh, episode which is going to drop after this is recorded, but before, yes, it's going to, but it will already be dropped by the time, already be out by the time this Correct. comes out. Um, I'm sure she's talked about the ABC, the asynchronous book club and yep. uh, her gift to uh, the little oracles and her gift to the everyday creative about encouraging folks to read books and to talk about what they're reading and, and uh, in, in a, in a similar, in a very similar manner. And I had really let my reading slip for a long time because it just wasn't making time for it. And uh, thanks to Allison uh, and the, and the ABC and the little oracles, I really dove, dove back in. And so there's a couple books that I would love to talk about that I uh, have read recently. Uh, one of them is uh, several of these are classics. These are not anything new, but very, they're very similar. Uh, so the first one was Parable of the Sower uh, by Octavia Butler. Um, it is, it was very timely to read it because there's an opera out uh, now. And I was able oh, to I see didn't know that. that. And the operatic version was amazing. Um, and I was very, very glad to have read the book recently so that I could be like, ah, not only do I know the story, but I kind of know it in detail, you know, it's fresh, it's yeah. so fresh in my head. I went with some friends who had not read it and uh, they got some, they enjoyed it, but they enjoyed the opera, but they got a different experience out of it than I did. Um, but it's about climate change disaster and, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and somebody's ability to thrive and to exist in that. Um, and somebody with a, dis- you know, and a, bl- and a black girl with a disability, really. You know, right. It's like, it's really somebody who, uh, to, who, who has a lot of uh, challenges in their life and still thriving and still, and still uh, finding a future. And I think, uh, you know, it's, it's a seminal work. I think everybody, everybody should read it, but it feels very relevant, even though it's 30 years old, it's amazing. It, you know, it still feels like it's written for today. Yeah. Um, uh, the other one that I, I also encouraged by Allison was Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Um, we talked about that what I, a freaking book it's it's so amazing and i had never read the, the original and i read it and i was like wait why does cinema depict frankenstein's monster as this groaning moaning unintelligent 
uh, creature when it's the most eloquent and thoughtful yep. of of characters in the whole story. I mean, Frankenstein's monster is by far the most sympathetic character, but also just like shed so much light on the cruelty of humans and and then we see movies and it just groans and mo- I, it, it it outrages me because it's the the character is such a good one. Um, and the Kenneth Branagh one tried it a little bit. De Niro played Frankenstein's monster, but they still couldn't get rid of the trope. They still could lean yeah. in the way it, it is. And Frankenstein and Bram Stoker's Dracula are two books that I tell people you if you've not read them, you have to read them. They're not okay. what you think that they are. Yeah, they, they're, they're very different than what they are. And when you when you read Bram Stoker's Dracula, you have to remember there was no vampire genre. Right. Like you have to read this with fresh eyes. Right. And, and when you read Bram Stoker's Dracula and think like, I don't know what vampires are. You read that for the first time. That book will scare the shit out of you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Right, right. Like, like I remember reading it and like, they talk about, you know, Count Dracula climbing up the side of the castle. And I just, if, in a moment I was just like, like I, I know vampires. So I wasn't that surprised, but, but I was like, imagine like reading this for the first time. The other thing too, especially with Frankenstein is who wrote it. Yeah, Mary Shelley as amazing. I mean, and her and mother was what, amazing. Like freaking 19 or 20 yeah. years old when she wrote yeah. it. it. It's 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 an unbelievable piece of work. And some some have cited it as the first science fiction novel ever written. Um, and that, you know, she really is the mother of science fiction in a lot of huh. ways. And I think that there's an argument to be made for that. Um, so yeah, I, I'm all in on Frankenstein, man. Yeah, yeah. It was it was such a delight to read the frame was amazing the 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 fact that the story was written at the very least it's always you know these are letters uh sent these letters sent and so at the very least you're one frame in but sometimes you're two or even three frames in you're writing letters of people recounting stories of people recounting stories it's you know and when you think about that you're like oh this is all in the frame of uh a letter uh you know from from robert i think the the you know, our primary narrator who you immediately forget because he's right. not a character. But then in the end, he gets sort of reintroduced as he finally kind of like steps back into the, you know, and starts telling, basically catches up to the present and yep. is telling his own story. It's, uh, oh, it's just such a, it's a great book. framework. It's just, it's just incredible. Yep. Um, and then the show that I've just devoured and loved, um, I mean, there's several shows I've been watching, but this one just really just just dug into me. I was sitting on the couch with Karen, and we were um, watching a show on Apple TV. I think we're watching Ted Lasso. And at the beginning of Apple TV episodes, it always gives you a little trailer for another Apple TV show. And uh, we were watching it, and we just see this long set of stairs in a cylindrical room, and we see this like diagram. And immediately, like nobody said anything or done anything. And immediately, Karen and I just grabbed each other. And we're like, oh, my God, is this silo? Is this wool? Is this, you know, like, and we just, we we could just tell just from the visuals of like three seconds of visuals. We're like, I think this is silo. Because we read those books by Hugh Howley years ago and loved them. I mean, we, we tore through all three books. They're huge books. And we just tore them up. And when we saw that little bit we're like i think this is silo and then we watched the rest of the trailer like yes it is we're like ah i almost didn't care what they did with it i was almost like no matter what i want to see it and then i watched it and it was so good it was just 
it's not the same story. They they make a lot of art, they make a lot of choices that are different than the books, but in no way did that feel untrue to the story. It felt like ah, this is what you can tell in this medium, um, and that's fine. You know, uh, that there's so many bits that they did that were different, and I just, I ate them all up. Like every every episode, we were just like the moment it dropped, we were watching it. Um, God, it's so good. So I, I, and can't, can't spoil it. Because what? I am now on episode four. So, so Silo has become my, I just recently had surgery. So I've got some extra time on my hands, you know, cause I'm not working yeah. and uh, Silo has become my show. Uh, I completely missed the boat, boat on the books. No idea yeah. that the books even existed. Um, kept hearing, have you seen Silo? Have you seen Silo? In fact, I think it was on Ty, uh, Ty and that guy podcast, um, which is uh Ty Franks, who uh, is one of the people that wrote uh, Leviathan Wakes, which became The Expanse. Right. And then one of the actors. It's a great podcast. Um, but they they mentioned Silo. Um, they're like, like he loved it. And I, like Ty Franks is kind of a dick. Um, but I like I like him, like his sensibilities. Yeah. I like him as a writer. And I and like generally speaking, every time he said, I like this, I'm like, I like that, too. Yeah. And so if, based off of that, I went and, and dude, episode one, I'm like. I was shocked how original it felt. Yeah. Because it's not that original, but there's, there's, a, there's an angle and I, and I'm only four episodes in, but there's an angle that they're coming at here that yeah. makes this feel very, very fresh. Yeah. And it's, and it's got murder mystery in it, which I'm just a freaking sucker oh, yeah. for. Yeah. It's, it, it, it delivers so well. Um, you know, Hugh, uh, we just watched John McFour last night. And uh, one of the things we were commenting as we we're watching it is that how much, how big the world of of John Wick feels without ever explaining itself. They never yeah. say, they never tell you what a crest is or what a marker is. You just find yeah. out from context. And even and and even though John is our center, is our point of view character, you just know there's there's like a thousand, a hundred thousand assassins out there. Like you just, the world is so big and so dense, and it looks both very much like a world and very different than our world. Yeah. And the world building they do in those movies makes that setting really compelling and interesting outside of any action scene or dialogue they have. It's just the, the, the things that you pick up on of like, what is this? What, what's the table? You know, all this stuff that, uh, and I think Silo does the same thing. I think Silo just really, uh, makes a world that you're just very compelled by. And, you know, post apocalyptic is certainly not a new genre, but their stance on it is. Uh, Hugh Howe's stance on it is absolutely amazing. And, you know, Common, Rebecca Ferguson, you know, oh my God. they're just, She's... they're just so good. Uh, Tim Robbins, like, I, I hate hating Tim Robbins, but like, he, he's good to hate too. Like, yeah. you know, um, yeah, every, everybody in it is like, again, again, they're just so in the world that they, you know, I mean, this is actors' jobs, right? Is to make these worlds come alive, but they just kill it, you know? Um, and and it's just delight. And I don't want to spoil any of it for you. Or no, for no, you don't, don't. Or I would just say watch it because it, every single episode is a, is a is a you know all star. Like there's the yeah. one that I didn't love. It, it's really astounding. And and you have just pinpointed something I had couldn't put my finger on that that hooked me and made me love it. And it's the same thing that I loved about the uh, remake of Battlestar Galactica. It's mm-hmm. the same thing I loved about the Expanse, and it's the same thing that now I now realize that I love about Silo which is time was spent saying, if, if our premise is true, what does that mean? Yeah. 
And it's the little things. It's the uh, in the Battlestar Galactica, the the fact that there's no corners on any yeah, of the pages, yeah, yeah. right? In, in the Expanse, the um the the Belter accent. Yeah. In in Silo, the and they don't explain this initially, but there in the Covenant, there is nothing. There's it's against the law to mechanize going up and down the silo. Yeah. And, and, and it's one thing just to say that it's another thing to have gone through and say, okay, what now? So what does that mean then? Right. Right. And, and, and Porter's running up and down the stairs all the time. It's little stuff like that, Sean, that I'm like, I'm in, let's do this. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a fantastic series. It's a, uh, it's a fantastic set of books. I love those books. I, I, like I said, I'm, I'm not a fast reader by any stretch, but I, I devour those. Um, uh, in that same vein, I mean, all of these are sort of futury, but in that same vein, first alien movie, I, yeah, it's a great horror movie. Absolutely. No, no, no doubt that the story of alien is great, but the world of alien oh is God. so compelling. You're just like, I love one of my favorite scenes in that whole movie is really early on. It's not, is no, there's no consequence of this plot wise, but they're in this engine room and they're fixing the engine. And shit, and like water is just spraying everywhere. And this is just normal. They're just like, yeah, this is just like shit that happens. Like, this is how this stuff works. It's half broken. It's fine because it, it just felt so lived in. And, um, Jared Sorensen, uh, who wrote Inspectors told me a story one time. And I think about it very often when I think about making games feel real is that he said, uh, one of the, one of the, there was an interview with a city, a city, city sanitation worker who, um, uh, uh, that inspired him. And the sanitation worker said the problem what was going to the sewers is that rats would, um, climb, that rats would scurry up your pants and then they would go, they would gravitate towards your crotch because it was warm and it was really hard. And like people would get freaked out about, you know, rats. And so the answer was to duct tape your pants closed. It wasn't to get rid of the rats. It wasn't not to go down there. It was, so now we duct tape our pants closed so rats can't climb up them. It was just like, that's the world we live in. Yep. Shit happens. And, and there's no good fix for it. So we just kind of figured out a way to make do. And like that, like sensibility of like, yeah, sometimes rats climb up your pants. Right. Like, <laughs> that's terrifying. But also like, so now we duct tape them. So it doesn't happen as much. Like, I just love that detail. I do of, too. Like, like, yeah. And that's, that's like the vibe of inspectors. Like, yeah, there's ghosts and they're gross and they do strange things. So like, so we try to make that not happen. Like, like we also know that like, it's still gonna happen and you know, we can't really stop it completely. And I, I, I love worlds that we're just like, things are imperfect and broken and yeah. like people just figure out how to work around them. And yeah. And, and there's a consistency that's there, right? Like, again, like if this, if we're accepting this premise, what does that really mean? And, and yeah. going through all the iterations of detail real quick on alien, because this is, this is one, this ties to what I said about Bram Stoker's Dracula. People forget what Ridley Scott, Scott did with alien is created a whole new genre of science fiction, because up to that point, there was no lived in future. Everything yeah. was shiny. Everything was Logan's run. Everything was Kubrick's uh, 2000, you know, 2001. Right. What what Ridley Scott gave us is an entire new genre of science fiction. There's no expanse. There's there's a whole host of stuff that never would have happened yeah. had he not created that world. Yeah, yeah. It's such a it, it, it yeah. It opened up so many doors and um and it's still just yeah. I could watch that movie today and oh. that's 
still totally holds up. love the, the little details that you collect on the line. I mean, my favorite episodes of The Expanse were like the first, I don't know, half of the first season before they kind of like got together as a group, before they kind of solidified like what they were doing. It was just the like weird vignettes of the world. And like, yep. I didn't know what was going on in the UN or the belt or anything like that, but I was just, I was just experiencing it and just going like, wow, this is cool. And, and yeah, of course in Mars, they have less gravity. And if a terraforming project failed, then they were going to be, you know, have a lot of uh, struggles to deal with. Um, yeah, just Smart. Uh, talk about it forever. But yeah, I, I, I love a world that, that you can, because you can imagine telling your own stories in those worlds, right? Like right. there's room to tell your own story when you have, my heart, the hardest thing I ever had with Star Wars was I love Star Wars. My, you know, I watched the movies over and over and over and over again. And we get to the RPG and we're like, cool, what do we do? And we're like, I don't know, because the stories that I know are Luke and Leia and Han. Yep. And I don't know where to start. And it, and we did. And eventually, eventually you, you carve out enough of a, of a, of a world to make it your own and you start telling your own stories. But it took us a while to get started. Yeah. Um, it's why any polished world I plan or any very, build world that doesn't have those gaps, I will automatically like wreck something in it to create a crater. So like I was running a Dune game and my, in my Dune game, I just said Jamis killed Paul in their duel. Paul's dead. Jamis has taken up some of his essence. So Jamis now has, is he the Kwisatz Probably not. But like, does he have something going on? Definitely. It's we're chaotic. off book. We're off book. Like there's no more canon. There's no, like we, all the characters that we love are, except for Paul are still there. <laughs> Right, but like now, this is your story. Now, do with it whatever you yeah. want. You don't have to try and fit within the space that is left by Paul because he takes up everything. He takes all oxygen out of the room, at least in the first book. Um, now, do whatever you want. And you know, I I got that because I listened to Judd Carlman's Sons of Cryos podcast a thousand years ago, and they said the first thing they did with when they were running in Forgotten Realms was to kill Alminster. Yep, he's mm. gone. Alminster's gone. What happens next? And I was like, oh, that's smart. That's smart. Just take that character that's just like sucking up all the air out of the room and just yeah. get rid of them and then say like, well, now there's a vacuum. Who's going to fill it? You are the players. You're going to yeah. be the ones to, to do something cool rather than like watching somebody else do something cool. Oh, anyway. that's so cool. That's so cool. Uh, Sean, there is a lot of really cool things to do on a Monday night that doesn't involve spending a couple hours with me. I really appreciate <laughs> you taking the time. Oh, it's totally been my pleasure. This has been great. Uh, this was a lot of fun and uh, those of you listening this is the end you made it I appreciate you listening take care we hope you enjoyed this episode subscribe to Tabletop Talk and share it with your friends check out our content on YouTube and Twitch Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and stay updated on everything coming from Third Floor. All the links are in the show notes. Take care, Floorheads. He's also the developmental editor of Apocalypse Keys and Blagues in the Dark and co-author of Agon. Oh, Agon. Agon, however you like it. People I, say it lots of different ways. And co-author of uh, Agon, Agon. I don't know why. I like it's the agony. Just agony. Okay, line. got it. Agon. I did, I did that to Andrew. Did Andrew tell you that? No. Oh, I, I st- Andrew had to run and take a break. When they came back, 
um, I did what I just did with you, which is let me capture this first segment. The, and then I know to restart the second segment and stuff. I forgot to hit record. We, we talked for an hour and a half. Oh, and literally, no. as I was closing out, about to hit the end of it, I went, oh, my God, Andrew, you're not going to believe what I'm about to tell you. And oh my literally the next day, they were like, yep, yeah, let's do it again. I'm like, God bless you. Oh, man, that's so sweet of them. Oh, they, they, they're what a good uh, human. Yeah, very good human. Yeah. All right. So I, I, I want a concrete example of where bringing her in had an impact on the game. Dude, that was amazing. I'm so glad. I hope oh, you put it all out there. Yeah, I'm really, uh, I'll stop sharing. Um, I, uh, there we go. Yeah, I, I'm so glad to talk to you about it because so often people are like, what's involved? And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to have to sell this again. No, you and just send the I link. Don't usually, I don't usually go into the detail that we're going now, but I'm Good. going into the detail now so that next time someone asks me, I'll be like, listen, there you go. I've answered Perfect. it. Here it is. Go to go to Craig. He knows. He knows the girl. <laughs> Perfect. All right, I'll bring us back. Uh, oh, hey, are you still here? Wow. Um. Well, the episode is over. But if you're bored, why not go to Patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month? Yeah, you can just scroll down. Scroll down and, yeah, get the link. It's Patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible. Don't you want to join the other floorheads on the Patreon Discord? Anyway, thanks for sticking around. Take care. Bye.